0: The Jericho Network on Westwood One.
1: This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me this week from the band, Judas Priest. It is Richie Faulkner. New album is Firepower. And let me tell you, I have heard it. It is so incredibly fantastic. I'm going to say it's probably one of their best albums ever. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, on the other side, I have got Pete Agnew from the band Nazareth. We do the entire history of the band and uh, what keeps him going. But before we get to Richie and Pete, I have on the phone right now Michael Sweet of, of Striper. Good day, Michael.
0: Hey, buddy. I'm in really great company.
1: Yeah. That's yeah.
0: amazing. Uh, I'm, I'm honored to be, be on with those guys, man. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, you know Richie Faulkner, having stepped into Judas Priest, he got accepted by the fans immediately. And and that, you know, when you have that talent and you just add an extra level to a band, fans are going to welcome you, right? I mean, he's just absolutely killer on guitar.
0: Absolutely, and uh, you know, it's it's not just the musicianship which is amazing, but it's the spirit and and the attitude and the presence. And he has all that. And, you know, I'm one of the biggest Judas Priest fans in the world. You know, you're talking Van Halen and you're talking Priest. Those are my two biggest influences. Absolutely. And uh, so I'd be one of those guys that would be tough and hard to please when you start breaking up the original lineup of Priest. Uh, But that being said, I understand things happen. Sometimes things are out of your control. And when you have to make that change, for whatever reason, you want someone like Richie who gets it and who's a fan himself and who uh, really excels at doing his job to the fullest.
1: Oh. And that's why it's so great. And that's why it works. And and that is also why you covered the band on your the covering album. But that's, that's why we're here, because before the interviews, I always do a little rock talk segment. And recently you put up a list on Facebook where you ranked all of Striper's albums from best to worst, or best right. to least appreciate. I don't want to say worst, because that, that's... A
0: oh, hard. we should maybe say people like the, the term uh, favorite, uh, most favorite to least favorite. Yeah, <laughs> so how's yeah, that?
1: yeah, because, uh, yeah, so we, we have that. So, and I find this interesting, because I have never seen an artist be if you want self-critical because every every new album is the greatest album they've ever made and yada 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 and and you've never seen you know Paul Stanley or Rob Halford or or Alice Cooper throw up a list of how they rank their albums so I found that fascinating so we're here to talk about that and oh it created a little bit of controversy so we're we're going to do this in in three segments so we'll do 12 to number nine right now and then we'll we'll roll into my richie faulkner interview which will be uh just going to be fun listening to that and then we'll come back after richie we'll do eight to five and then we'll finish off with your top four but uh that number
0: tell tell richie we're coming to see him at mohegan so we'll we'll be there yeah we'll be there and we'll be in the crowd somewhere
1: yeah, and well, and I'll be at the Ottawa show. You know what? And, and I just want to finish on, on the Richie thing, but Firepower, like, like I said, is really one of the best albums they've ever made. It just it hits every chord that you know you want heavy. It's got heavy. You want you want a, a more moody song. It's got that, and I just can't wait to see these songs translated live. That's that's what makes. Yes. Well, by the way, when you write a song, do you think of it as this is going to be a studio only song or a live song? Does, does every song have to Have that ability to be played live? I don't think, personally speaking,
0: that I realize that until after the fact, you know, until the album's done and I start thinking about the live show and you start putting together the set list and then you realize, oh man, this one's going to be really hard to pull off or this one's impossible to pull off. There are a few of those, you know. Um, But for the most part, I really try to write with that in mind, the live performance in mind, so that we can go out and and perform these songs in a way that fans are able to, you know, hear them as they should be heard.
1: Yeah, I I just asked because Ozzy recently said that he would never do a studio or an album tour because he wrote albums with songs meant specifically to be Album cuts and others to be performed live. Anyway, let's let's get into this. Let's let's rock the hell out of you. That's just that's just a really uh, classy way of saying uh, I can't sing those songs anymore. <laughs> possibly, possibly. But all right. So number twelve on your list of least favorite. Uh, an album released uh, literally six days before my birthday. Um, against the law. Tom Worman, of course, who, yes. who helped make Cheap Trick fabulous, right? Produced this album, and you know, listen, it's got it's it's got Tom Worman, it's got Striper, it's got purple cover, sort of <laughs>
0: <laughs> two covers. We had a red cover and a, a bluish
1: purple. Cover, yeah, bluish. Yeah. blue. So against the law, you said that it is your least favorite, and of course, on my Facebook and on the internet, people went, "What? What the hell is what?"
0: Well, so, well a, a lot of people did, but it, a lot of people also said, I agree with Michael. So it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, and, and then you have Eddie Delena, who engineered it, who's fantastic. And Tom is one of the best producers ever and world-renowned and obviously a legendary guy and yep. I love him, and it's not to take anything away from him as a producer.
1: And runs a great bed and breakfast out in Massachusetts, which I've stayed at. So, folks, look that up and go go, go hang out with Tom Worman. It's, it's it's an experience.
0: And I I've tried and wanted to do that, and I've heard from Tom, and we plan on doing that ourselves. And uh, absolutely, and I love Tom. You know, he's 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 a great. Not only is he a great producer, he's a great person and uh you know i really really love him i haven't seen him in years so i would love to see him again uh in this lifetime for sure but you know i i rank that album at uh, the bottom of the list because i don't feel that it's a true representation of who striper is uh, in any way shape or form be it it's a great album be it There are some great performances, be it it is, is greatly produced. I'll agree with all of that. And I don't have a problem agreeing with all of that. But in terms of is it really a Striper album? The answer is no, in my opinion. And that goes for the look. It was one of those moments in time that we went through where we just kind of got tired of everything. We rebelled against everything. So we changed everything. And to me... When you have a, a, a an incredible amount of success based on uh, an original sound, an original look, an original message, and just everything that you are, and then you completely throw that in the trash can, that's to me, that's not a formula for success. Right. And it, granted, we learned a lot from it, but we also learned the fact that most of our fans, which is odd, because all of a sudden there's all these fans coming out saying they love that album. But at the time most of our fans were alienated and didn't get behind it and you can you can blame that on the times and say it was because it was the eight the 80s going into the 90s and music was changing but then you had bands like firehouse who were still uh you know having top 10 10 singles and we were as uh, poppy as any band out there. And Trickster, who was opening for us on the Against the Law tour, who was bringing two-thirds of the people in ticket sales, and we were bringing a third. So you can't really use that as an argument. Right. Right. Uh, it was it was really, in, in my opinion, based on the fact that we changed too much and we became a different band. We weren't Striper anymore. We were more like a Van Halen clone or uh, some other band. We should have really uh, changed the name of the band,
1: too. Would you... I, I mean, just looking at the songs, though, on it, uh, I mean, they're still good songs. I mean, I know the, the whole context was, was different and you shouldn't have been, but if you look at... You know caught in the middle or rock the people or two-time woman I mean they're 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 great songs I mean why why they just...
0: they're, they're good songs okay. I mean I think I think the great songs on it and, and again this is just all uh, relative in all opinion so take it for whatever it is <clears throat> the great songs on it and the ones that are like make me go oh wow and want to play them live still, and, and want to listen to them still, are songs like All For One. Why? Because I think it's a well-structured song, and I think it's it's one of the few that has more of that classic striper sound to it. Uh, Caught in the Middle is is kind of teeter-tottering on that as well. So that's another favorite of mine, too, on this song. Lady is another great song. But there are some real stinkers on that album, too. And I shouldn't say stinkers. I should say some songs that are just like we were trying too hard to, to be another band right. and, and, and not be Striper. And, and like, what's the point of that? I mean, our biggest, most successful album to date was uh, To Hell with the Devil. Why yeah. would we just take that and wad it up into a ball and throw it into a trash can? It
1: makes no sense to me. I agree. So let, let us move on to number eleven on your list, uh, and and of course the list is is all the striper stuff. We're not including uh, Lynch, Mo- Lynch mob and Lynch mob, Sweet and Lynch. We we could include Lynch mob albums, but it would be a little strange. Uh, and of course the, the the solo stuff. Um. So number eleven, Yellow and Black, the Yellow and Black Attack. Um. Okay. Why is that one? Because that that's right at the beginning. That that's the one that sort of sets the path and gets gets right. things going and yet you look back, is it just immature? Is it is it you haven't developed yet? Uh, or yes, is, okay. yes and yes. Absolutely. I mean,
0: yeah, there there's some rawness on that album that's undeniable. Uh, there is a certain level of energy because we were young and, and excited, and that comes through in the tracks. That's undeniable. But I think that we were rather immature at that time, uh, musically speaking. Songs were just kind of presented in a way that wasn't as thought out or, uh, you know, we didn't have our heels sunk into the, into the ground yet. And I just think that it kind of comes across on that, not just in the songwriting, but also in the production. The production is, eh, in my opinion, not at the top of the list in terms of production by no means. Um, and you know, it's an EP, It's not a full length, which is kind of like, uh. and then to kind of add, you know, uh, fuel to the fire, we remixed it and utterly destroyed it. Right. I don't even remember who remixed it. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but it got remixed and we added a couple of uh, new songs and we took a song called My Love I'll Always Show, which we recently uh, re-recorded the right way, the original way, heavy, and we rewrote it into some syrupy ballad, uh, and, and put that on it. And then it got drenched in reverb and lost any punch that it had. So that was fuel to the fire in my reasons why I put it so low on the list.
1: Right. Okay. So let us move on to number nine. Now, since you posted the list on Facebook, you have changed a couple of positions, and we'll get to that in a second. But then we've got Reborn, a, yeah. a more modern-day striper from 2005. It is way down at the bottom on this list. How come? Uh, <laughs> There's many
0: reasons why that's at the bottom of the list too. Number one, it was an originally uh, it was a solo album,
1: right? And by the okay, way, it's so... interesting that it's, it's sort of the follow-up to Against the Law. And, and so those two are the ones where you go, mm, maybe not.
0: <laughs> well, and, and see, I'm being fair here. That wasn't even a Striper album. That was a solo album. So it's not like I'm picking on Striper. Crap. I'm just giving my, my honest, open-hearted opinion. That was a solo album. So that really probably should have never been a Striper album to begin with. But it was the quickest and easiest solution at the time. We weren't even a band. I played it for the guys. They loved it. And Oz even said, man, wow, this this stuff would be great as as Striper songs, as a Striper album. So the light went off in my mind. And I suggested that. we started, I was shopping it as a solo album. I, I had a deal with a company called Big Three. And then we turned that into a Striper album and said, well, what do you think about Striper? And they said, oh my gosh, yeah, that would be great. And we signed a deal with Big Three and it became a Striper album. But that being said... Not just because it's a solo album. I think it's a great album. If it was a solo album and I had you know other musicians on it, I'd probably put that higher on my solo album list. Right. Okay? Because I think it's a great album. I love, I love some of the songs on that album, and I, I dig it. It was a different direction for us. But the thing that kind of sets me off with that is it was solo, number one. We didn't do enough guitar solos, uh, number two. We were thinking more 90s, and hey, right. they do less solos now, and well, see, that that's it. stupid.
1: That's, that's a but sign that... of the time, because 2005, the guitar solo was a non-entity. People had just stopped. Even Metallica, if you look at uh, St. Anger, which came out in 2003 around the same time, was just solo-less, or as I call it, I know. soul-less. I
0: agree, but, but it was stupid. Uh, whoever yeah. wh- whoever made that decision consciously or subconsciously and I think probably most of it falls on me as quote unquote producer co-producer uh you know it, it was stupid because we're a guitar band that's part of our signature sound yeah so again throwing that away for whatever reason dumb
1: See, I I, I would blame the producer on this one, which – oh, wait, that was you.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it was co-produced, but (laughs) anyway, yeah.
1: With Kenny Lewis. Uh,
0: I agree. I have always thought about, let's go back and re-record that album. And people don't like re-records for the most part. I get it. It's already been done, blah, blah, blah. But if we were to go back and re-record that album with slam in production and add guitar solos, I'm going to even step out and say – that that would probably go towards the top of our list, not just on my list, but on probably most fans' list as well.
1: You see, see, I have a suggestion for, for re-records, because I know fans hate it, but if you look at <laughs> Reborn, Yellow Black Attack, Against the Law, and God We Trust, if you were to take like three or four songs from each album, actually that'd be a 16th, let's say three songs and have a twelve, and re-record those best three and make them what they should be in 2018, that actually would be sort of a... A cool idea, you know? Well, we did it. I mean, we we did that concept with sec-
0: Second Coming. Right. We pulled uh, songs from uh, Yellow and Black Attack, from Soldiers Under Command, and from To Hell with the Devil, and then added one new song. And we had, I think, 16 songs on that. And we're going to do that again. We're going to pull songs from In God We Trust, from Against the Law, and whatever other album, and then add a new song. We're going to do the same thing. And um. So I love that concept. I think it's brilliant. And, you know, it's a way for us to show fans uh, our reinterpretation of the song and in 2018. Right.
1: Now, uh, let us move on to song number nine. Now, originally on the list, it was In God We Trust. But uh, since then, you've, you've rethought it and we've changed it and you've now put... Murder by Pride at that wonderful position, the 2009 release, again on Big Three. Um, okay, why, why is Murder by Pride the ninth greatest?
0: Well, I only problem? swapped those two. I swapped those two around before our, our interview here. And the reason why I did that is I felt like I should give a little bit more respect to In God We Trust. Uh, I don't even know if respect's the right word, but uh, I felt like I should move it up one higher because it's obviously – uh, it's got the history and you know, it's paid. It's in God we trust has paid its dues, you know, uh, murder by pride hasn't as much. So I felt like ah, I should pay a little more respect, but murder by pride is in that spot because I feel like Striper coming off of the heels of reborn was still kind of going through its, uh, stage of, you know, evolution and, uh, Trying to find itself again, uh, trying to figure out who to be in in the in in this day and age or at that day and age. It came out. No, oh, when did it come out again? What year? Murder by Pride. Two thousand nine. Okay, so two thousand and nine, <clears throat> and it was it was an interesting time, a very interesting time. Uh, we were all going through a lot. Okay a lot of internal things, a lot of personal things. Uh, and we were trying to find ourselves, and we were trying to find ourselves musically, personally, everything. So that album, to me, is really great. has some really wonderful songs on it. But I still think that we weren't at our peak quite yet.
1: Right. Uh, and, and, and you've got Kenny Aronoff in there and Tom Schultz that, that came in and, and landed a, a solo for you, or Peace of Mind. So
0: Yeah. Which is crazy, because Tom doesn't do that ever. And uh, because I was, uh, you know, affiliated and, and associated, or soon to be anyway, uh, with Boston. Uh, and uh, I, I toured with them in '08, obviously, and we recorded that album. We started that album in 07. Um, but yeah, so Tom was on it, Kenny Arnoff was on it, uh, for, you know, reasons we don't need to go into now. But uh, it's, and that's another big reason, too. It wasn't, Robert wasn't on it. Right. And, you know, if you take Robert off of an album, you're all of a sudden really changing the tone and and the sound and the feel of the album. Uh, And it it instantly becomes something else. It's not 100 percent striper, authentic striper. So that's another reason why it's not at the top of my list. Great album.
1: But those are the reasons why. Those are the reasons. So we will we will take a break from from the countdown. We will come back with albums seven to four and we'll find out where the new album, A Goddamn Evil Places. But uh, for now, here is from Judas Priest, the one, the only, Richie Faulkner. We are speaking with guitarist Richie Faulkner of the band Judas Priest, a new album. In fact, a new masterpiece is called Firepower. Um, Richie, pleasure to speak with you again it's been, it's been a few years
2: Mitch, the pleasure is all mine, man It's Firepower Friday i tell you what, it's like waking up on Christmas morning But we are Santa Claus, if you know what I mean Giving our heavy metal gifts to the world You know what I mean? I could not sleep I was up at 4am this morning So excited just to, you know Unleash the firepower onto the world And um, see everyone's reactions to it And experience with it So it's a, it's a great day, man I'm, It's a pleasure to be here
1: Yeah, you know, it's quite amazing because I've had a chance to, I mean, I heard the album before it got released, it's out now, and the reviews coming in are basically everything from Masterpiece to Essential to 10 on 10 to 11 on 10. Uh, Talk to me about putting this together and sort of the pressure of the band, because it has such a legacy. You're new to the legacy. Um, Talk to me about sort of getting these songs put together and, and living up to the Judas Priest name. Well,
2: you're absolutely right. I mean, the uh, the feedback so far has been overwhelmingly positive. You're absolutely right. Um, I think there there is a pressure to, uh, you know, to better yourself. But I, I don't think that's based on uh, reviews so much. I think it's a, it's a natural drive that we all have in the band, and I've seen it in the band close hand, you know, pushing ourselves uh, personally, um, musically, and as a group, you know. Uh, and I think Firepower is... Uh, an extension of that um i mean we we just try and do the best we can and uh we we knew we had something uh special with firepower because mitch you never know when you go into a a writing session you never know what you're going to come out with you know you could come out with something that's great or something that's not so great you know uh and by the same token we could think something's great and we, we we might put it out and people might not think so i mean some of the some of the worst received albums in history have been great ideas at the time you know but you never know how they're going to be received so it's exciting um it's creative but you've just got to push yourself uh, as an individual musician and each other in the band to try and get the best song the best guitar solo the best drum feel the best emotion the best lyric the best delivery that you can and uh, to be honest we're all proud of the record and i, I think we achieved that on firepower
1: Yeah, you really did. Now, um, I will be seeing you in Ottawa on March 25th, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, Talk to me about having Andy Sneap not only be the producer of this album, but now having him join you on stage and what that's going to be like.
2: Well, um, Andy was, you know, Glenn's first choice, really. Uh, He was in the family already. Uh, There's a connection to the record and obviously connection to the band. He was aware of Glenn's situation being the producer in the studio you know everyone you know producer-wise needed to be aware of the situation uh, and he's a great guitar player and he was as i said he was in the family he was around at the time and um we asked him and and he was and he was the guy that said he didn't want to be seen as the new guitar player in Judas priest you know he wanted to be seen as the guy that's helping out filling in for glenn flying the flag for glenn and the band and um you know I think that's a noble attitude for someone to have, you know, and as and when Glenn feels well and able to come out, he's going to join us on stage and do some songs with us. So it's a it's a great situation all around. And, um, you know, we're just pushing on and hopefully we can get Glenn back out there.
1: You talk to me about about uh, Glenn's uh, medical condition here. We the fans found out about it just recently in the last sort of three weeks, month. How long has the band been aware and? Talk to me about his participation on firepower. There, there are some out there saying that he might not have played on all of it, but I've understood that he's part of the entire process. Correct?
2: Thousand percent. Yeah, he's part of the entire process from from the writing. I mean, anyone that knows Glenn Tipton's guitar playing and uh, writing style can hear him all over it. Um, he played all these parts. Obviously, in the studio, it's different. We can we can take time. He can you know get comfortable on his parts and. And stuff like that whereas live is a bit of a different scenario but um you know it, it's all glenn on there and you know we've we've known for a few years um obviously it's 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 a private issue it's, it's glenn's health and uh he chose to keep it private which uh, i'll make him right for really um he was battling a little bit through the redeemer of souls tour in the rehearsals for redeemer of souls but you know in true glenn tipton style he He faced it, he he fought it, and he beat it, you know, and he went from strength to strength. Um, I remember initially in the Redeemer of Souls tour, we left some songs out of the set, like Painkiller, Electric Eye, but as we went on through the set, uh, we were able to put those songs back in due to Glenn's sheer determination, you know, Um, and Firepower is also a testament to that. You listen to that record, that's a guy 10 years in to... uh, to Parkinson's disease. And it's just, again, it's a, a testament to how much of a hero Glenn Tip- Tipton is, you know. And um, so, you know, I, I know there's been some doubt, and I know where that doubt comes from. I think we all do. Um, so, you know, but th- there he is. He, he's on the record. You can take time recording the parts. Uh, live is a bit of a different scenario. So he had to hold his hands up and say, guys, I'm going to have to pull back a bit from touring. And, you know, that was a brave decision to make uh his priority was the best thing for the band and we said to him glenn it's what's best for you is best for everyone concerned you know it's you've got to take care of yourself first and foremost and um you know as a result as i said if he's welling out well enough he can come out and join us for a few encores and i think it's going to raise the roof you know i think the fans are going to go ballistic
1: Oh, I, I fully agree, and I would certainly love to see that. I, I Hopefully he'll be on every tour stop and at least come out and wave to the fans. Um, Firepower, the the artwork, from what I understand, you're involved not just musically, but you had some input on creating the artwork or the look. Is that is that the case? And if so, talk to me about being involved more than just musically with the band.
2: Well, we all did, really. We all have input into it, and we all have our say. Um, I actually, um, I've got a, uh, an artist that I know called Claudio Bergamin, who's uh, done some work for me in the past. And uh, he's always said, Richie, whenever there's a Priest album, can you put me forward for some, you know, some, some sketches, just for some, uh, you know, some ideas? And I said, of course. And uh, so I, I gave him, as soon as we had the, um, the provisional title for the record, uh, I gave him the title. And I said, uh, you know, come up with something you know he knows priest he knows the legacy he knows the band and uh, I think he came up with something that was like the music it, it contained the firepower of the music but also the the reference to the past but something modern it was it was exactly what we wanted and when we saw it I think we were all it was immediate that that's it it was a sketch but it was immediate it was fiery it was intense it was you know forward thrusting it was it was fantastic so props to him for that but i mean in terms of uh being involved in other things apart from the music it's always been like that we, we're all we since i've joined the band mitch it's been inclusive it's been you know what do you think richie what opinions do you have how should we change this how do we make this better it's just a, a perfect example of what you'd imagine your favorite bands to be you know on the inside it's just a master class in in how to be a band so it, it, it's a thrill to be a part of
1: it really is um a lot of bands out there uh, and artists, whether it's Elton John or Lynyard Skinner, Skynyrd, have uh, raised the specter of farewell tours and it's time to call it a day. Is that a discussion that Judas Priest is having at this point, even though Firepower is out and it's a great album and there's a new tour coming out? Is there sort of a, a three or four year plan where you start thinking, OK, we might have to wrap this up?
2: No, the, the, the focus at the moment is Firepower is the fans it's the tour it's the record it's glenn uh and it's the future you know and i think that's the way it should be i I think that you know i think the uh i joined the band when there was a fire uh excuse me uh farewell tour uh in the works and uh we're still going seven years later so i don't think you can really make plans set in stone anyway you know um we're infused about the new record. We, we love playing, obviously. I mean, these guys have been doing it almost 50 years, man. I mean, it's, you know, it's over 10 years longer than I've been alive, dude. So, you know, th- there's passion, there's intensity, there's a love for the fans and the music. And we just, we just fired up about the new record and our focus is playing that and getting out and, you know, meeting the fans and playing for the fans, man. And that's, that's where our thought process and focus is at the moment.
1: Do you, though, personally ever start thinking down the, down the road five or ten years and think, you know, once this band does stop touring, what do I do? Do, do you continue? Uh, do you just become a solo artist? Do you look for another band to join? Do you, do you have those those thoughts about what's next for me?
2: Well, as I said, I, I joined the band and I was under no illusion that uh, it was going to be a 40-year a, a career in the band. You know, Glenn told me straight up, this is the farewell tour. We're not sure how long we've got left, you know um, so I think i'd be i'd be silly really not to think at least about the future and stuff like that, but to be honest, man, as i said since i've joined this band, they've given me so much of a voice, so much of an opinion, so much input, and so much of a so much respect you know i I think that when a band does that and gives you that much respect you you can only give that back a thousand fold so from that point of view you know judas priest is my band. like judas priest is my band you know what i mean i'm not thinking about doing something else on the side or um putting something together for a solo career judas priest is my band and i give it a thousand percent you know and i think that's uh that's the way it should be they've given me they've changed my life so i can just all i can do is give them back everything i have you know
1: yeah you really can um Talk to me about how the fans have accepted you because, you know, I've been around and I've seen a lot of bands and I've seen a lot of replacement players and the first thing a fan says is, well, bring back the other guy. And in your case, not only have they embraced you, not only have you breathed new life into the band, it's almost like people can't think of Judas Priest without you. So talk to me about the fans' reaction to accepting you and and why do you think you fit in so, so well with Judas Priest?
2: I think... Um there's a healthy skepticism with any change like that especially after 40 years i mean ken's a legend he is a legend he will always be a legend uh he chose to leave and you know whenever there's a replacement like that in a football team or whatever group it is and especially music and especially metal and priest you know we know what, you know we know what we're like as fans you know we're incredibly yeah. opinionated sometimes and uh I think there's a healthy amount of skepticism there. I mean, people were so passionate about this band. How can there not be? But uh, you know, the fans—they they trusted the band. They bought their tickets. You know, everyone works hard. They buy their tickets. They come down to the show, and you know, they, they gave the band a chance. They gave me a chance. And there's there's still territories and and cities and countries around the world where fans haven't seen me with the band, and they're, they're still, you know, again, they're, they're still trusting the band and again Mitch we we played New Zealand in 2015 and and the band have never played New Zealand so again not only have they not seen me with the band but they've never seen the band full stop so it's a continuation of this duty to fly the flag for Priest for metal for the legacy and for the future and for the fans and what it means and i think i think that's saying that it felt that feels like the reason why it might have worked so well i think i understand the responsibility. I think I understand what it means to millions of people around the world to be in that position, uh, and, and I don't take it for granted. I don't take the fans for granted. I give a thousand percent to the band, to myself, to the legacy, to the future. I think that I know what it means um, intrinsically. You know, I don't have to think about it. It's I don't have to put on a Judas Priest hat or a heavy metal hat. This is who I am as a guitar player, a musician, and a person. And I think maybe i don't know man but maybe that's why it's worked out so well
1: yeah it's just it's just always amazes me because you look at for example tommy thayer and kiss he's been there 16 years and there's still people that say well bring back ace and when richie faulkner comes up in conversation they're like no that's the that's the uh, guitarist in, in judas priest and and there just isn't that same sort of like well we need and and, and it's just amazing to see um another thing that you are known for or that you love is star wars talk to me a little bit about your your love and appreciation for star wars i have one of your guitar picks in front of me with with one of the star uh, star wars uh cruisers for the lack of a better word. Um, where does that love and appreciation come from?
2: It all comes from uh, my childhood, really. And uh, we we're all big kids at the end of the day, you know what I mean? I mean, we've just put a record out with a big metal monster on it. I mean, we're, we're all huge kids. But I think uh, there are parallels in, uh, in science fiction and fantasy with heavy metal and storytelling, you know what I mean? There's the, uh, there's the fantastical elements of, of the songs and the movies, and there are also universal themes um, that, that touch our lives, you know. You know, it's Luke Skywalker, the protagonist, facing challenges, um, you know, conquering the Empire. In the same that it might be for Rising from Ruins, from Firepower, you know, it's it, it kind of takes you to another world, but also touches on on uh, on social themes and and very real themes. And I think there's a link there. You know, I think that's why I'm into metal and and music like that, fantastical music and and sci-fi and star wars i think it's there's the link right there um and star wars was just a visual um medium to see that in but it's pretty much the same if you if you sum it up like that you know
1: yeah absolutely and uh, i see we're running out of time so let me just get over here to the uh, epiphone the uh, limited edition richie faulkner flying v custom outfit epiphone guitar um the the thing is gorgeous it just it's, it's an absolute beauty it's got the little um Judas Priest logo in the headstock talk to me about that guitar and and sort of putting it together and you know what can fans expect if they want to check it out
2: well i'm i'm glad you like the guitar man i mean we've been uh, we're in production rehearsals at the moment so it's uh we've been using them in production rehearsals and using them along with my old gibsons you know the the old ones and uh, the 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 workhorses that I have, and they stand up fantastically. Epiphone did a great job. Um, it's based on a, on a Gibson that uh, I've been slowly customizing since I joined Priest. Gibson were nice enough to make me a, uh, a V with a Floyd Rose, and uh, I've steadily, you know gradually been customizing it as we go along, so I put a double scratch plate on it, um, which is basically uh, to stop it from stop the paint from chipping under all the, the cuff, the leather and the, the studs and spikes on the cuffs that I wear, you know, um, it's got the EMGs on, it's got the, um, the binding, the ebony fretboard, it's got the priest logo, as you said. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's what I was using with priest and, uh, you know, me and Epiphone got together and it was a no brainer. This, this was the guitar. It was already there pretty much, you know, and they did a great job of putting it together. And it's pretty, it's, it's, pretty much the same thing as, as the Gibson. Obviously, it's, uh, it's a different price point. I mean, if it was exactly the same, there'd be something wrong there, you know what I mean? But, I mean, I'll put it right next to my Gibsons, and it's it's fantastic. It's uh, You know, when you get those things that allow you to express yourself, whether it's a paintbrush or a guitar or a pencil or a microphone, whatever it may be, it's one of those things where, for me, because it's been evolving over the last seven years, it's just, it suits me, and it enables me to create and speak through the guitar so uh anyone that comes to uh, the pre-show over the next year or so we can uh, i'm going to be playing them so you'll be able to see them and hear them and uh, experience them so uh yeah. yeah go check them out man I- i'm glad you picked up on that it's a it's a great guitar it's a-, oh. it's a great moment for me as well to be part of that family
1: oh yeah and and i'll finish with this since we're we're down to our last two minutes uh, speaking of family uh lauren harris uh, daughter of iron maiden uh bassist steve harris you toured North America with her and, and her Calm Before the Storm album. You played on it. Just talk to me about that family and being part of that project, because that's really where we got to first discover you. I mean, I know you had done a couple of things before, but that one was really where we went, oh, who's that guy? I like him. Um, talk to me about that experience and, and that tour. <laughs> well, that was my
2: first experience into, you know, obviously, I mean, I've never done anything as big as Maiden before. Uh, not, you know, uh, show-wise and uh, tour-wise. You know, we we got on a bloody 737, I think it was, and, and traveled. You know, it used to be tour buses and uh, you know transit vans. Now it was a 737 around the world. It was it was a, an eye-opening experience. But you know, I think you just mentioned it the, the sense of family around that group and that band and the Maiden camp. Um, it, it, I think that's what enables. I, again, in, uh, without getting too prophetical here, I mean, in any situation, I think it's the people around you, the group of people that enable you to go and do new things and, and conquer new territories, and that was that was no different. Um, it was just a f- great example of great people, uh, you know, a great unit, uh, and great experiences, and it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about traveling, the tour life, uh, getting up in front of 80,000 people.
1: Yeah, you played whacking For your
2: life, man, because you...
1: Right You, play, you played played
2: dude it. it was eighty five thousand people right. and you 're literally you 're almost fighting for your life you know I mean not to take you know not to, not literally, but um, we 're opening for iron maiden we 've got um, Lauren at the front, and we 're a group of unknowns playing you know it wasn 't the hardest rock music in the world, but there we were, standing up for what we believed in and giving it a thousand percent you know and I think that ethos um, you know, translates to this day. And I think that's part of the priest ethos as well. But I think because of that, I knew the rules of the road. I knew what to expect. I wasn't going to flake out on stage. And I think that was, I mean, it was pretty instrumental in, um, not instrumental, but it was part, it was a big reason, I think, why um, priests might have considered me, really, that I, I knew what to do. I was a relative unknown But I'd been exposed to that sort of schedule and uh, circumstance and they knew I could take it. So, uh, you know, I like to think that played a part in uh, me being considered for for the priest. And uh, so here we are seven years later. But it it was a great experience, man. And I love those guys. I love Maiden, the the people that were in the band with Lauren, all of them. They were just, they're they're still like family. We we still keep in contact and uh, we're great friends. So uh, that's the the power of music, isn't it, man? We, We meet people in music and we stay friends for life.
1: Yeah, it really is. And and the on-the-job training of, of playing Wackin' and other festivals around North America and, and Europe, is just, you, you just can't get that anywhere else. And it here we are, as you said, seven years later, and uh, new mu- uh, it's 10 years since uh, Calm Before the Storm, actually, but there you go. Um, I sprinted through this because we only had 20 minutes, and I know we're done, but thank you, Richie. Always, always a pleasure, and I look forward to saying hello in, in Ottawa, and uh, merci beaucoup, as we say in this part of the world.
2: Mitch, it's a pleasure, man. I'll be looking out for you in Ottawa, and I'll try and get a new – I've got a new Star Wars pick. I've got a new uh, um, run of picks coming out with the – last ones were the Bounty Hunters. These ones are going to be the ships, and the ones for the North America and Canada are the X-Wing. So I'll look for you, and if I see you, I'll throw you a
1: couple out. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Looking forward to seeing you, mate. Bye-bye now. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Big thank you to Richie Faulkner for that uh, great interview, and of course, Firepower is the new album. The band on tour right now with Saxon and Black Star Riders, which is to me one of the greatest rock and roll bands of the last ten years. But uh, also, still got Michael Sweet on the uh, on the phone. We are going to finish the countdown. I, I sort of feel like Casey Kasem at this point. I like it. Do you have a long distance dedication for anybody? <laughs> right
0: well uh, I, I i've got a dedication uh in a story about a little dog no i'm only kidding <laughs> have well, you have you guys have you guys heard that you, you, there's there's him going off i guess about a dog at one point in time and
1: yeah i uh, heard
0: that I, I almost think that that's not casey Kasem. i that's not how i want to remember casey Kasem at all
1: yeah i, um, I heard that on uh I think it was on the Howard Stern show. They played that clip right where he was talking about a dead dog and he got all, all annoyed. Uh, my by it. word. But yeah, uh, it let's un- I have a long distance dedication. Uh, you've got a new single, right? Sorry.
0: We've got a new single, uh, and it's either coming out or it's out already. And I'm assuming that it's out already because this yep. is, uh, this is out. So, yeah. uh, yes, we had a new music video, new song called sorry. Yeah. And it, it, Certainly puts to rest uh, any arguments that people had over take it to the cross, which was completely out of left field for us in a curveball and, and certainly uh, unexpected. From Striper for us to go in,
3: you know,
0: and people hear that and they're like, what is this? And sorry is much more in line with what people might expect Striper to do.
1: And of course, this is all taken from the new album, Goddamn Evil, which uh, comes out in April, and uh, we haven't ranked it yet, so it's on the list, and, and we'll definitely uh, we'll get to it at some point. And uh, just quickly, <laughs> there's a song on the album called Can't Live Without Your Love. That is a glorious, glorious song. I can't wait for fans to hear that. But all right, here we go. Let's get to <laughs> Numero Reet, number eight. Uh, the continues our little swap here. It is... In God We Trust from 1988 classic album cover. Um okay, why why is this one especially from the classic era of the band? Why is that one sort of towards the end of the list? And and Well, I mean, you know, some people think I should rank that higher and uh it, it, they feel
0: I don't give that one enough love. And the reason why I, I think there are some of uh, a few of our best songs ever on that on that album. You know, uh For example, one of my all-time favorite metal songs that Striper's ever done is The Writings on the Wall. I love that song. Uh, Obviously, uh, Always There for You uh, was our first single from that and really did well, and people really loved it. And we play that one to this day. I play it acoustically. So there's some really good songs on that album. Um, But I believe that at the time... For whatever reason, we were under a lot of pressure to outdo our hugely successful To Hell with the Devil by ourselves, by the label. And that pressure was building. And we worked hard and harder and harder and harder. And then one month turned into two and two into three and, and three into six. We wound up working on that album for like six months. And investing, you know, I believe, uh, almost $600,000 into it. Wow. And and j- just kind of spinning our wheels, trying to make it perfect. I got sick during the time, so my voice wasn't up to par for a few of those months. And when I finally got better, uh, you know, I was still subconsciously thinking, "Gosh, I'm not good enough. My voice is still feeling weird. I, I'm having a tough time." So there was some odd stuff going on with my voice. Some people say that's the best you've ever sang, and I, I feel like I I sound like a, a you know uh, uh hummingbird right uh on that album
1: you know by, really high by the way that, that's that's one thing i think that fans don't understand when you rank these albums T- to us it's just a collection of songs but for the band you know th- there's personal situations illness divorce uh, uh, record company right. pressures and and it brings you back to those moments of bad times for example and you go yeah, I can't. I can't get into that headspace anymore because it was just a miserable. Now I don't know if that was the case for "In God We Trust," but you know, sometimes these album rankings, because there's a personal story backstory that fans don't don't get, you don't understand why you're saying, "Oh, well, against the law was," tw- well, yeah, but maybe you know. Anyway,
0: uh, yeah, and, and against the law has a lot of those stories to it too. Our our personal lives were uh, completely uprooted at the time. You know, all of our marriages were on the rocks, and and we were we had gone back to drinking, and uh, we had this rebellious spirit and attitude, and rightfully so. But I mean, that's part of the against the law, uh, eh, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not mind. just it's just not a collection of songs to the band. It's a it's it's an entire you know. Of course. When you get uh, to to find out what the word recoupment means, you go, oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, exactly. Let us move exactly. on. Exactly.
0: But, you know, In God We Trust, just to finish with In God We Trust, it was, in my opinion, overproduced. Uh, and if we took that album right now and re-recorded it, dropped it down a half a step, re-recorded those songs today, it would probably go at the top of my list. Was that – because I
1: I was just going to say, was that because of some of the, the record company pressure? Because you had the success with the album just before, and they're saying, okay, let's make a part two. I mean, and, and then you, you really sort of overthink it and overanalyze it, and, and it becomes very contrived. Was, was was it a bit contrived? It was. I okay. mean, some of it came from the record company, but they were
0: gracious. They always were. Enigma Records, Bill Hine and Wes Hine, they were always just fantastic and never... Uh, really pressured us in that way that most labels did at the time. And they were always, they always gave us creative control. They were amazing. So a little bit of the pressure came from them because obviously we all wanted a successful album, but most of it came from us. You know, we had a a co-producer on that album, uh, Michael Lloyd, who was the guy that produced the Dirty Dancing album. And he also produced uh, Sean Cassidy and,
1: the monkeys <laughs> oh did he also do leaf garrett why not throw in the trifecta he, he,
0: he did he did do leaf garrett <laughs>
1: <laughs> he, he lived
0: in in uh beverly hills and you walked in his house and there were gold and platinum albums everywhere i mean he's a legendary producer look him up he's, he's done a ton of stuff wow by the
1: way that that, that, being... that just quickly reminds me of tom Warman when i went over to the bed and breakfast you walk into that first hall And on the, it's just a hall of cheap trick gold and platinum records, and you go, "Uh huh, okay,
0: yeah, (laughs) oh yeah, (laughs) I know." And it's it's quite a sight to see. And you know, Michael is a brilliant producer, Michael uh, Michael Lloyd. Yeah. Uh, But we were trying something different, and that's the one thing about Striper, love us or hate us, is we always try different things. We're always trying to evolve, and we're trying to do different things and, and progress. So we went with Michael Lloyd, and you know, uh, the album wound up taking on a little bit. Although we we produced it probably three quarters, and he produced it a quarter, so I can't put a lot of blame on him. Maybe just a little bit, uh, but it, I just feel like that album was a little slick, a little overproduced, a little slick, uh, and I I wish that it had been a little bit more in your face and raw and tough. Uh, and, and and there you go. So that's why it's at that spot in my, uh, on my list. I'm honest.
1: But, but also, at that time, every album was slick. I mean, you look around to Bon Jovi true. and Def Leppard and, and uh, Motley Crue. I mean, everything was shiny true, true. and sweet and stuff.
0: All right, so... You're right. You're right. And, you know, the biggest thing that bothers me about that album is my voice. I mean, I, I, I don't really like how I sound on that album. Uh, I would love to you know, re-record or have another shot at that album, just singing it with more soul and not so sterilized.
1: Yeah, but, uh, you know, you, you look back to, a, to to an album like Kiss Crazy Nights, and I'm sure Paul Stanley would say the same thing about his voice. That was just sort of the technique of the time, yeah. is to get this sort of sugary, sweet... I guess. Uh... I,
0: I guess you're right about that. I get it. But it still doesn't sit right with me in 2018. Right. Correct. You know what I mean? It, it, it's it's one that I, I have a hard time listening to uh, to this day.
1: Second Coming uh, comes in at number seven. Now, this is the one that is the re-records that has uh, earlier material as well as a couple of new songs. Ja- Japan got together as one as a bonus track, which um, should at some point show up somewhere else. But all right, Second Coming. It is in the middle of the pack, and it's interesting because it is re-recorded, so it's 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 not. I don't want to say it's not an album, but you know, it's it's not sort of a, a sequenced album of collection of new songs. It's these, right. but it ranks at number seven because I guess it is the one where you put in a a new coat of paint on some of the older ones and said, okay, here's what we're gonna do in 2013. Um, talk to me about that one. Well, you know, <clears throat> some people have <clears throat>
0: taken that off the list and said, that doesn't count. You can't count that. Well, absolutely, yes, I can, and I will count that because, <clears throat> yes, it's a re-record, but there's also two new songs on it, <clears throat> and most of those re-records absolutely smoke the originals. Now, again, it's a matter of opinion, but, you know, for example, the, the two songs from The Yellow and Black Attack, uh, Loving You and Loud and Clear, there's no comparison if those came out in 1984, right. I think it would have, as much as people liked the originals back then, I think that they would not have been able to digest or accept, and I say this humbly, how good those songs, the re-records, would have been back then. It's it's night and day, in my opinion. It's they're so much better. They have balls. They have punch. They they have meat. They, it's produced much better. It it sounds tougher and, and more like we probably wanted to sound back
1: then. It really, it really does. Um, all right. Uh, since since we're talking about re-records. Number 6 is the covering which is re-records in a sense but of other bands material so a covers album that comes in in your top 6 that that is interesting to me because you know when you, when you have when you write your own songs and you, you perform your own songs you would think there's a personal attachment and, and but okay you've got Shout It out loud on this over the mountain breaking the law heaven and hell Uh, By the way, your version of Heaven and Hell is is fantastic, which I think just speaks volumes about how that song is so great, because it doesn't matter who sings it, that song, whether it's you or Queensryche or Black Sabbath, that song just, man, it just resonates. But okay, the cover's album is at number six. Yes, and
0: two big reasons why. Number one, those are all the bands that inspired us to become a band. So if it wasn't for all that music, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. So instantaneously from the heart, that one goes higher up on the list. Cause it's got a real personal heart string attached to it, but also equally as important is the production. I feel with that album, that was the, the, the big moment for us uh, and for me as a producer where it was like, okay, we found ourselves again. This is, this is our sound. This, this, this sounds good. This says punch. This is tight. We got the guitar tone back. We've got this back. We've got that back. And we're here. Boom. And that's the album. Just so happens it's a cover album. But that's the album that, that happened with and on.
1: And that's I think that's part of the reason why you you rediscover yourself you You listen to the songs that made you who you are that that inspired you to pick up a guitar, and then you you dig into them and it's like, oh yeah yeah it sounds yeah
0: and and then and then we kind of came back to ourselves uh in terms of our own songs too, with the one original song on that album, God, yeah. That was the that was the eye opening moment for us as well, again in my opinion, where it was like, Okay, here we are, we're back. This is what this is the style that we should be performing and playing and, and all of us were excited about it, going, Wow, yeah, this is cool and we there kinda is. continued that with the albums that
1: followed suit. Yeah. Now, and then, uh, just a, a quick correction before I move on. I said uh, Queensrÿche covered it, but they covered Neon Nights. I was thinking about Anthrax that had been playing uh, Heaven and Hell live. So, just just a quick correction before I get all kinds of tweets and emails and Facebook messages <laughs> saying, uh, "What are you talking about, LaFawn?" Le um, anyway, <laughs> uh, let's go on. Let's go on to number five, uh, one of your greatest albums and one of the most, uh, I guess, iconic covers of of, of the day. From 1986 to hell with the devil. I'm sure Richard Christie of the Howard Stern Show would stick this probably a bit higher, but number <laughs> numero six I know. I,
0: I think he would put "In God We Trust" at number one.
1: Yeah, yeah, I probably. Do. Yeah. So all right, to hell with the devil. <clears throat> at five, people are people are rolling their eyes as I say that. But okay, <laughs> why? why? Uh, honestly well, why so no. low? <laughs> no well
0: look it's it's our biggest selling album to date our most successful album to date and i tend to automatically be that guy where when something's really commercial or or too commercial if you will i tend to be that guy that likes the thing that's not as commercial the song that's not as commercial the band that's not as commercial i don't know if it's a rebellion in me or what It's just I gravitate more to that. So that might have a little effect on that rank and that number. Uh, But that being said, obviously, that album kind of had it all. It really came together. Uh, There are a few things I don't like about that album uh, that I despise about that album that kind of make it hard for me to listen to. For example, on many of the songs, the cymbals are accidentally gated. So like sing along song. If you go back and listen to that, and every time Rob hits a crash cymbal, it sounds like he's choking every cymbal. Well, he's not choking every cymbal. Every cymbal's gated. Uh oh. Okay. And we were in such a rush to get the mastering. Eddie Schreier at Capitol. We had an appointment, and Eddie was the, the he was the bomb man. He was the dude, and um. We didn't want to lose that appointment, so we were literally like mixing until you know six a.m. the last day. I was hosing Oz off in the back because he he didn't hadn't had a shower for a couple days, you know, and that's a true story. Uh, but that being said, we we kind of missed some very important things on that album. One of those being the symbols are gated. It drives me insane. I can't listen to it. Um, the sound of my voice at times is kind of annoying. My vibrato, uh, real real fast and heavy. Uh, little things that just kind of annoy me about that album. But I understand why it's our most successful. Totally. Absolutely. And I don't deny that for one second.
1: Was there a pressure after, since it was successful, that everything that came after, the record company would say, well, that's great, but yeah, I don't hear another honestly. Or yeah, it's great. I don't hear another to hell with the devil. Like, did it become so successful that it became sort of a, a pain in your tuchus, where people just sort of went, yeah, but I don't hear another one like this. Did
0: you yeah, get the- we got some pressure from people, not so much the label again. Again, they were so gracious always. More so from ourselves. More so from me. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist, and I always I'm one of those guys that always tries to outdo the last. Right. It's just it's just how I'm built. I always want to do better. Uh, you know, and- uh, the last isn't good enough for me, man. I could do better. I've got more in me and and I'm always trying to achieve that. So I think it, that was going on back then as well.
1: Yeah, you see. So. All right. So let's let, let us get to the top four. But uh, first, let us listen to Pete Agnew of Nazareth. We spend uh, the time looking over the career The new album that they just completed, which will be out later this summer, and we pay homage to Daryl Sweet, the uh, drummer who passed away, of course, in 1999. So here, without further ado, the one, the only bassist for Scottish band Nazareth, Pete Agnew. We are speaking with Pete Agnew of the band Nazareth, Pete Agnew absolute, absolute pleasure to speak with you. I saw you in 2017 in Montreal, the new lineup, new singer, the whole thing at the Corona Theatre, and it was absolutely spectacular. So, just thank you for a great evening of rock and roll, and and pleasure to talk to you.
4: Thanks very much, Mitch. It's a pleasure to talk to anyone that thinks it was fabulous. That's great. What what a wonderful time. uh, I think before we started recording, I mentioned to you that We've never played that venue before, and uh, and I've played in Montreal many times uh, over the the last four, forty odd years, forty five years, uh, and it was it was also it was one of it was a city that when we had a lot of friends up there in the seventies, especially, and uh, we used to come up there any time we got a couple of days off when we were touring in North America. Uh, and we would always nip up, we'd catch a flight, and we'd always fly up to Montreal and <coughs> spend our days off up there. <coughs> so we knew, um, we knew the city quite well back then, you know. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got something in my throat here.
1: <coughs> yeah. And, and, you yeah know,
4: we, 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 we knew the place quite well, uh, and but it's been quite a while since we've been up, um, well, lately, you know, in the last 10 years, I don't think we've been up there. Yeah. Maybe, Maybe just once.
1: Yeah, and, and Montreal's always been partial to bands like Nazareth, Nazareth Super, Tramps. Yeah. They they just love these th- those kinds of bands. Um, but let's get started with 2018 first, and then we'll sort of work our way back into the rich, rich history of the band. You have just finished the new album. It is not out oh. yet. It's probably not even mixed yet, but the recording part, from what I understand, is done. First,
4: is yeah, that correct? we finished... Uh we finished up on Sunday there, so that's uh, yeah, that's it's six days actually since we finished. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's quite, it's quite good because if we hadn't have finished, I wouldn't have gotten to the studio this week because of the snow that we've had here. Everyone's been snowed in, uh, so it's been it's been quite uh, it's, it's just as well we finished on Sunday. As you say, it's never been uh, it's never been it doesn't start getting mixed until next week. I just spoke to a producer this morning actually, he's back in Switzerland, uh, He's from, he lives in the Zurich area, and uh, so he's having a bit, the, the like is is a good thing to do as usual, once you've finished recording, you've been working on the thing for a couple of months, is to give it a couple of weeks without listening to anything and then start to mix it you know and it's all fresh and it's so it's nice to hear it all again rather than you know the drudgery of overdubs and everything uh, to go straight into mixing is a bad idea so he's given it a couple of weeks and he'll start mixing and hopefully it'll be done well it'll be done by the end
1: but they're done by the end of march so let me get some information on this new album musically you know, you have such a rich history. This is album, I believe, 24, if I'm not mistaken, right? right? Yeah, that's right, right. Um, what are you trying to say with this one? Do, do you have that freedom where you can do sort of whatever you want because you still got this back catalog and you can still go fill a show up with all these great hits? Or do you say, okay, this has to be a Nazareth, Nazareth-sounding album we need to find that cla- how do you approach it in terms of writing and musically and of course now with carl singing um just talk to me about yeah, the whole
4: well, process we approached it with i mean i could i could speak for all the guys i mean we, we, we approached it with a certain amount of trepidation because uh we've you know if it had been album 23 i would have said we had nothing to prove you know because we would had uh, all that but with a brand new singer you know what's going to happen as soon as you bring out a new album, uh, people are going to start comparing this, that, and the next thing. It's bound to happen. I mean, even though they're a completely different kind of vocalist, it's bound to happen. So it's a little bit, a little bit nerve wracking going into the studio, having that, you know, in your mind. But uh, the other thing is, is we, we, we we've written songs uh, in the past every, every time like having Dan in mind, you know. So we're writing songs this time. And trying to think in terms of having carol singing them, and it's a different, you know, you have a different approach, obviously, you know, uh, to to how you how you lay the things out, um, so and how you structure things. So it's been a bit of a challenge actually, all in all. Uh, fortunately, it's turned do out very, very well. I mean, we we had, uh, which we thought was a good idea, as to 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 have the guy he wrote at least half a dozen of the songs. Uh, because, you know, a guy will always sing the songs that he writes himself. He should be able to be able to bang them out, no problem. Uh, so we thought we'd weight it heavily in that direction. But then again, there's another, well, there's another, what I would say, seven, six, six, seven, seven songs from the other guys. Uh, so he's singing our material, if you like, or the, or the way that we've written in the past. Um, so it's, it was quite. it was quite interesting, actually, putting the whole thing together. Um, and I think I think people are going to are going to like it. It's, it's, it's like any other Nazareth album. It's quite diverse. Uh, the, 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 we, we've always been like that though, with the songs. You know, we don't have a any specific genre when we when we play. You know, we we, we, we can we can have things that are kind of bluesy influenced. We can have things that are you know heavier rock and you mm. know rhythm and blues. D- different things. We've always had that. Uh, so it's going to be quite uh, quite noticeable on this this album that you have various different uh, songwriting styles. You know,
1: when do you when do you foresee the album actually being out for
4: Well, fans you Dubai? see what happens. Mitch? You know, you, get, you when uh, as anybody will tell you, once you give it to the record company, uh, it's kind of out of your hands. And when I'll we'll deliver this thing at the end of March, we'll give it to the record company. So you, normally you're looking at about three months turnaround, you know. I mean, they can do it quicker than that, yeah, if they're all prepared. But generally, when you, we've found any time we've given, you've done one album, it's always been about three months. I'd like to see it out uh, April, mid June. I'd like to see it out in June, you know. Uh, but uh, it might be July. Um, I won't think it ends later than that. You know, they want to get it out. They want to get it out for the summer, you know, and, and for the... And for the festivals and stuff like that, you know. So it would be nice to get it uh, out in the middle of the year. I, I like I say, well, well, I just told you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, you're really at the mercy of the the. the, the once you hand it over, it's uh, everybody everybody else gets involved, and you've done your bit, and nobody wants to hear from you again. Until right. Is, right. Until but but also to.
1: To be fair to the record companies, uh, there is a setup, there is a marketing plan. Well, there, yeah, there, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, Just for fans to not get all mad and say, oh, those lazy. Re-, it's really not like oh, that. No, no, I'm not saying that.
3: <laughs> no, no, I
1: know thing. that. I mean,
4: I'm, not, I'm not slagging them. I'm, I'm saying know. that it does take Yeah, It usually takes us roughly. I mean, let me see. We, if, if you take it from the mixing, if you take it from recording uh, right through to mixing, the whole thing probably takes us around three months or two and a half to three months so basically they're just taking the same length of time as us only to get the thing to do all what they do and get their shit together and get everything out there you know so as you say you've got uh, yeah you've got the the actual production of the thing you've got um, you want know, the production of the thing takes a little well anyway but then you've got advertising you've got the laws you've got you know there's a, there's a lot involved actually getting an album out in the street if they're going to do it properly you
1: know do, does the album have a a title at this point, or is that still a mystery?
4: <laughs> well, funny enough, funny enough, I've just been uh, we've we'll, we'll been just exchanging different ideas over and, uh, today. Uh, n- none of us have seen we don't see each other since we've come out of the studio, and um, who are in the studio. Uh, we've, there was a few contenders, but we never had we never settled on anything. So now we're going come on, guys, come on, guys. Because if it's like any other Nazareth album, you know we get to the stage when we we've been terrible getting titles together. Uh, generally, it's got so bad that um, you know they've actually got the thing printed and ready to go and I think we're putting stickers on it with a name you know <laughs> so we'll just have to see if we can do it a bit quicker I'm hoping to get a name this week but I'm sorry I can't give you it
1: today can't give it today um what compels you at this point though to actually make an album because you could go out you know like you did at the Corona in Montreal and other places you put Natherus on the marquee you come out you do Hair of the Dog you do Love Hurts uh-huh. you do all these songs and that's what the fans are going to cheer for and they're going to love yeah um why goes through sort of the struggle of putting together songs, of crafting songs, of, of dealing with record companies? Um, you know, at this point, well, twenty-three albums in.
4: Yeah, I think the, the main thing is is you know I, I know that when you play when we when we do a set, I mean seventy percent of the set is, is spoken for already. It's by it's supply and demand. You know, the people want to hear. Um, they want to hear the hits. I mean, if we don't do Love Hurts and we don't do Here of a Dog or Son of a Bitch, whatever, and we don't do a a certain amount of these songs, then people would want their money back, and quite rightly, you know, they want to hear the the songs that made you famous. Um, But also, you know, if you, there's a lot of bands, especially over here, well, you've got them in America as well, in Europe, you know, and we consider them oldies bands, as they call them, because that's all they do, is they go out and play they tour and they go and play their hits and they don't make new albums. And if you're making new albums, it gives you a certain it gives you a certain credibility that you're still, can, can we say you're still being creative? Uh, that, that you know you're, you're still got the creative juices running there. And and you real, real, real fans. They, they do want to hear. They do want to hear new material. You know they might they might not want you to play five of these songs on stage live. But they want to know that you're still, um, you know, that you're still. I don't know. Capable. I, I, I don't know the word I'm looking for here. But you know that, that it's rather than just be. It's as if you're still. Uh, right. you're, you're, you're still. You're I see still what you going. mean. I'm not going. You're still through life, alive. You know.
1: Right. You're not just going through the motions. You you still have some creative juices flowing. You're of not, course.
4: You know, right, and, okay. and and I think you know that, and and people, you you'll see even. I mean, even the bands that have been around like ourselves for a while. I mean, they're, they're still, you know, they're not making an album every year. But um, I mean, Uriah they they and us usually have this a, a new album out at the same time every time. They're still doing a new album this year. Deep Purple just did an album last year. There, um, you know, you still got you still got go, these bands. They don't need to do albums. You know, I mean. Deep Papa can go and play Smoke in the Water all night and everybody's happy, you know, but they, they still want to, they still create new songs, you know, to eleven But know that they're still, they're still doing it, you know, they still mean something.
1: Yeah. And, and, and uh, you just mentioned Uriah Heep. I just saw them about three or four weeks ago at the same oh, theatre, right. at the Corona. Right. Holy mackerel. I mean, what a spotless performance. I mean, Mick Box and... It,
4: uh, a Mexican, I spoke to him actually just a couple of weeks ago just before he did that gig
1: Yeah, honestly <laughs> if you two combined for, for for a few dates it would just be spectacular cause it,
4: Well, what we used to do is uh, for years, uh, going back a few years now um, in the 90s we used to do that all the time in Europe it was Uriah, Heap and Nazareth and we used to go out together to do a big European tours and we used to do it sort of you know, one night they would open, we would close the show. The next night, we opened, they closed the show. It was, you know, um, flip-flop, as we used to call it. And it was great, great fun, great, and it was and it was great because the the same audience, although the bands are completely different and, and the, the kind of music we play, we appealed to the same audience. So it was a great ticket for everybody, you know? And, it's, oh. uh, and we did actually do a tour over in, in America with them. We, we did... A couple of gigs in Canada. We played up in, uh, in Vancouver, I think. Uh, that where you know we did a do a tour with them. But um, anyway, that's them. They, they've never toured over there for years, so that's them sort of coming coming in now. So the best of luck to the boys.
1: Oh, and it was, it was great, just just like your show. Um, just a quick aside since we mentioned Hera the dog, uh, uh, an American band called Brittany Fox and their Boys in Heat album covered the album covered the song, but. Guns N' Roses covered the song on their Spaghetti Incident album. What kind of impact did that have for you? Did it did it give you a new attention from new fans? Was it absolutely nothing? It did nothing. Was it just great for the pocketbook? Talk to me about what it was like having Guns N' Roses grab that song and make it their own.
4: It was great too because I mean it, it brings you to you know when. In the early days, uh, when when we when we first met the guys, when we, when we played and uh, we did some gigs in California, and and these young guys came to see us every night. They came to six shows back to back, whatever town whatever we were in. And it was the then they told us at the time they were it was it was Axel and Flash. It was the Guns and Roses. They told them we said oh what a great name blah blah, and they were a nice bunch of young guys. And Dan was seemingly, and I think he still is, he was Axel's favourite singer, you know, so he, Axel just wanted to see him every night. And it was, and it was very good. And, of course, had no idea they were going to get as huge as they were. So he told, I mean, when, in interviews, you know, the band talked about Nazareth quite a bit. And that can do you no harm, you know, because they had just got a huge audience we're a, a huge hit album, and when they're talking about you in interviews, everybody's anybody that hasn't, you know, that sort of maybe that generation or that age group that hadn't heard Nazareth, we're going to say, Well, I'm going to have a listen to these guys, you know. And uh, so, you know, people that were Guns N' Roses fans were taking a look at Nazareth, and uh, so that was very good for us. Um, and also, the very fact that they did cover it and it was a big selling uh, album. It didn't do us any harm, uh, box wise, for a wee while there. So that was yeah, no no complaints. I would just, <laughs> I'd like somebody to cover one of those songs every week. But um, it was yeah yeah, it was good. It was it was uh, it was nice uh, having that um, that nudge if you like. Yeah
1: yeah, and and just speaking for myself, I mean I, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and I was all Cheap Trick and Kiss and Aerosmith mm-hmm. and Nazareth, and and then it, I sort of lost touch with those bands as Bon Jovi and Def Leppard and Motley Crue and. And then Guns N' Roses did the song, and I was like, "Oh yeah, let me go back. Let let's go." And that that's what it did. And and as I went back, then I got back into Aerosmith, and I got back into Cheap Trick, and I got back into yeah. all those those sort of seventies bands. And it was like, ah, merci beaucoup, Axl Rose, you know. So <laughs> couldn't hurt. Now, of course, you mentioned Dan. Uh, mm. Let's quickly uh, talk about Dan. He, of course, left the band. Uh, well, Stopped Touring 2013, I guess, the the last record, Rock and Roll, um, Telephone, 2014. What was it like when he came to you or approached you and said, listen, I I can't do this anymore?
4: No, he didn't have to approach us. I mean, the guy just, by that time, it was uh, way, way, way past that. You know, it was coming for a few years. It was coming because of the COPD, you know, you can't breathe, you know, and it, it was getting worse and worse. Until um, eventually, uh, well, the last Canadian tour I did with him, that was in should. Uh, right,
1: Cranbrook Curling yeah. Center in Cranbrook, Canada, where he collapsed.
4: That was his last gig uh, in Canada. That was the the last one, and we came back from there in 2013, and we finished the album actually because we did, we recorded half of the album in May, and we came back and we finished it when we came back from Canada, and he was able to finish it because. You see, when you're singing in a studio, as everyone knows, or if they don't know, they should know about this time. I mean, you can make an album, like, one line at a time, or one word at a time, if you like. But, you know, you can sing a chorus, and then if you don't like it, you can sing another line, and you can take, it, you can take your time. You can be choosy, you can pick out the bits you like. So you can sing, you can sing and do that, but singing a song live and up there on stage and getting on a stage and doing a live performance, that's a whole different... You know, you can't sit down between lines and take a breath. So he couldn't do it anymore. After we, we went out to do a show, uh, after we finished the album, and we'd come back from Canada finished the album, we went out to do a festival thing that was us, Joe Cocker, and uh, two or three other bands at the time. Uh, and Dan got up and the first couple of songs we just knew he just couldn't breathe you know. and we'd already had to cancel shows over the, the couple of years before so when he came off then he just said that's it you know I can't do this anymore and we knew that we just knew that he just couldn't do it and it was really just a case of are we going to keep going or are we, are we just going to call it a day you know just say, is it all over and of course right away he said well you don't want to you, you know you've got to keep going because the band's still a great band you know and it was it was uh, it was a decision that had to be made, and we were really that sort of year after they left. You know, it was it was touch and go whether we were going to keep going. We got a guy in to do a few shows, and it wasn't really happening. You know,
3: right? Linton.
4: Ah, yeah, and we, and we thought, no, nah, this is it's not working. You know, and then there uh, was a friend of ours actually um, recommended. A, uh, a, a drummer friend of ours, Ted McKenna, he played with the Sensational Alice Avery band. He's a, he tours with Wing V um uh well actually at the moment he's he's touring with Schenker. Uh, so uh, so he'd he would he would heard this guy, Carl sentence and he he got in touch with me and said, You should have a listen to this guy. I think he would maybe fit the bill. So when we heard Carl we thought, Oh yeah, this guy's very good and we got and it was great because he was the When we were, people knew we were looking for a singer and everybody was sending us tapes and sending me emails and sending me attachments with all these vocals on them and every one of them were trying to sound like Dan McCafferty, you know, they were all kind of Dan McCafferty sound-alikes and things. And I knew we couldn't go that way because you would just get hammered, you know, by the critics. If you tried to get somebody, try to get a sound-alike, it would be terrible, you know, we couldn't do that so we had to go and then we got Carole up and we just did this absolutely phenomenal singer that doesn't sing like Dan at all but he sang the Nazareth songs in his way and we thought now this could work this could definitely work you know and uh, and it did you know we, we, we decided then to, to get him in and that was now almost three well three years ago now and uh, things have been you know from from good to better uh, all, all the way along and I think, as you saw yourself, uh, when you saw the show, the guy's really—he's a really brilliant front man as well.
3: Oh, yeah, he delivered. He the getting a new release,
4: really, you know. Uh, but, I, I, I mean, Dan, I, I was out with Dan. I still see that uh, a lot, because we only live a bit, well, in a car. He's like three, three and a half minutes from where I was. Uh, he's in the village, the next village along. And uh, I see him quite often. in fact, last weekend, him and I, were, we were at a or a black tie dinner thing together. <laughs> but he's uh you know, he's he, he can still he's still he's still saying He's he's actually doing a he's do, doing an album right now, a solo album. He's in fact he's almost finished that I think. Yeah, he's doing a thing with a guy in it from the Czech Republic from Prague. And it's um it's a different kind of material. But he's doing that. But there again you see you can you can he, he's in the same studios that we've just came from uh, again, he could take his time and do it. He can, you know, he can go and sing a verse. He can sing, you know, another verse. He doesn't have to be, you know, standing about and getting up on stage and having to sing uh, for an hour and a half
1: um, know, straight. Just talk to me about that. That that those sort of two years of no man's land. Linton comes in. It doesn't work. It, okay, it doesn't work. So what? But for you, was there a moment of? Are we going to be able to continue, or is it even worth trying to find somebody? Or what? That's
4: exactly how we felt, you know. Okay. Exactly how I felt, anyway. You know, is it? You know, I mean, when when Dan had to give it up, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, there's a there's a bit of heart, heart goes out of the band, you know, because you you know you've you, you won't, I mean I've um, see Dan Dan and I we go back uh, well when you're five years old the first day you go to school when you're five and you sit next to somebody at the double desks, you know. Well, I sat next to this guy called Billy McCafferty, uh, and that was Dan, you know. And We sat next to each other the very first day in school, uh, when we were five, and we've been best friends since. So, you know, it's 60, uh, let's not even count, 66, 67 years that him and I have been best friends. So it wasn't just like a singer leaving the band. Uh, for me, it was uh, my best friend in the world had to stop Doing way. He, he loved doing, and what I loved doing with him, you know. So it was a big, big hole there when, when when he packed it in, and I and I really didn't feel like going on really. But then you had Jimmy and Lee here, who are great musicians, and great songwriters, and guys that have they've played in Nazareth for a long, long time. Jimmy's played in Nazareth longer than any other guitar player. He's been in the band for like twenty-five, twenty-four years now, you know. So Nazareth is, is as much them uh, and they're as much Nazareth really as aren', you know. And we thought, well, we've got to keep, we've got to keep. I've got, I'm thinking, I've got to keep this thing going for these guys, if nothing else, you know. And of course, uh, well, we did, you know. At that that time, that year, I, I must say, wasn't it wasn't a happy time for 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 any of us really. And at, 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 after about a year, that's when, at, like I said before, we actually considered then. No, nah, it's not really worth it. It's not worth it. It's not. It's not working. We don't have the spark that that, that we had and, and that, that what we needed. And then it all changed, thankfully. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's tremendous. what made.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I was just going to say that's what made the the last tour that I saw and having this new album coming out in 2018 so great because yeah. you go through this low and you go, uh oh, we're still here, we're still creative, the fans still yeah. appreciate it. Because that show in Montreal was completely sold out. It was fantastic.
4: Um, I was brilliant. I mean, the thing is that what's happened is this last, it's quite incredible, actually, this last three years, especially this last two years, after we did the first sort of the year with Carl and Cal, they got to know, the people got to know what he was about. And seeing him on YouTube and seeing what, what was happening with the band and what the band was like. Our our crowds actually went up, you know. Our, our 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 audience attendance has been going up steadily since then, and uh, and we've been more and more festivals offered to us and everything. So it's 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 actually been a complete turnaround, you know. And, um, and I'm very I'm I'm very very happy at this stage, and quite looking forward to the, you know. The, at first we you say well we'll have to do a new album because you've got a new singer, you know, and you can't just go around and not, you know, you're not really in a band until you've recorded an album with the band, you know, it's this, you got to make sure that this is the band, you know? So we had to make an album. I mean, it was almost like the law, you know? And so when we went in at first, when we were thinking about it at first, it was because we have to make an album, but then saying, no, we're enjoying making this album, you know? And we then then it got to, you know, now we're really looking forward to it coming out. So, it's uh, it's been quite an exciting. It's been quite exciting three years, this
1: this last three years. It really has. Now, of course you you mentioned Jimmy and we, we 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 talk about guitars. You've had at points the band with four members with one guitar and at other times five members <coughs> pardon me, yeah. with two guitars. Um, talk to me about that decision because to have a lead and a rhythm guitar in a band certainly changes the texture, changes the complexion, changes the songs that you can yeah, write sure. and perform. Uh, talk to me about the decision, you know, somewhere around seventy nine, eighty to say, okay, we're going to bring a guy in and have, you know, z- uh, z- um, Zal, I guess it was. Um, yeah,
4: but you see, the thing is, it wasn't just like bringing in a guy. I mean, right. we were brought in Zal Clemson. is probably one of the best guitar players in the world. I mean, he was. Late, I mean, I mean, when guys like, uh, when Jeff, guys like Jeff Baxter and uh, Steve Copper. They saw Zal in the studio with us when he were producing, they couldn't believe the guy, he was that good uh, so he came in because he was a friend of ours and he was amazing and we just had to have him in the band uh, so that, that was why that first happened, you know, he was doing nothing after the sensation of Alex Harvey Band packed in, he was doing nothing he was driving a taxi, we thought that was a crime so we got him into Nazareth and it was the first time that we'd had two guitar players in, in, the, in the band and it was good. It was, it was an experiment more than anything else. So when he left, uh, we had got kind of used to having a guitar player. So that's where we got Billy in as well, to you know to keep the two guitar thing going. Uh, and of course that, that that went that went for a few years. And then uh, we went back to the we went back to the fourth piece thing. And we're most comfortable, I think, with that um, with that lineup anyway. And then later on, when Manny was gone, then Jimmy came in. Uh, Jimmy's never played in the band with another guitar player it's always just been Jimmy with a keyboard player for a while with uh, Jimmy for about well for about eight years but it's well, Jimmy's never had another guitar player playing in the band so he's always been uh, he's he's always he's always preferred this line up you know with one guitar but having said that the other thing is uh, maybe people, a lot of people don't know about Carl but people here do in Britain I mean he's quite a, quite a guitar player himself he he has his, a band of his own um, called Persian Risk, and he's the lead guitar player and singer in that band, or, or he's a guitar player in that band. Uh, so um, he can, uh, you know, if, if we wanted to have another... In fact, we do it in Sunshine. I think you saw me playing rhythm, uh, um, acoustic guitar, and Sunshine on the stage. But if we wanted to have him uh, playing... We can. Have, we've got the choice now. If we want to do it, we we two guitar players. We have got a singer that can play guitar now as well. So that's a first for us.
1: <laughs> when you did go to the five, though, did you? How how was the sound affected? Was that? Did you think, wow, we've we've really got this sort of wall of sound going on, or, or how? Or was yeah. it like oh, we just got an extra texture?
4: Yeah, you could do you could do different things, you know. I mean, we we uh, we were never a, we were never a heavy metal band, so we never used guitars like that, you know. It was uh, it was always guys, you know, they could uh, interplay sort of thing, you know. It was more um, more like that, more like uh, when but we've had two guitars. I always like to think it's more like uh, like the Stones, you know, with Keith Richard and Ronnie, but you know, they don't. There's no really lead guitar players. They both play a kind of rhythm come lead guitar kind of thing, you know. And it's great. The interplay is really, really great between them. And it's that kind of thing that we look for. And we having two guitar players rather than, you know, so it wasn't a big riff thing. It was, uh, it was good. It was, it was, it, it, it was, um, it was good for me. I liked it, you know. we playing bass actually made made my life easier, you know. I could lie back a bit, but um, it was it was good and. And it, had a, it, had a, it gave you a freedom to do to do stuff. I mean, when bands, even uh, four-piece bands, uh, they record and then, you know, you come up and you go on stage and you play the songs. But if you find that on the albums, I know on our albums, and I know in on every one I've ever heard of everybody else, except maybe three, uh, everybody overdubs. Uh, and the overdub, and there's always two guitars on the albums anyway. You know, as uh, the guitar player overdubs, uh, and and he'll, he'll put a rhythm track down, and he'll play a lead track over it. At least the very, at the very least, so we could actually perform that live then. You know, when we when we when when we're playing now, uh, you're playing as a 4 piece, but you're not playing all the parts because you you'd overdubbed. You know, on on the thing. Well, we could play those overdubs then when we had five five guys in the band. And it was good at the time, but
1: Yeah, it was great. I mean, I
4: don't know. I I, I like the space in a four-piece. You know, I like the sort of the space and and the, the 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 air that's in, in around the band. You
1: know. Yeah, and and, and I'll agree with that because most of the bands I like are four pieces. I you know, I love Cheap mm-hmm. Trick, I love Kiss, I love I love you know those bands are all those four, but Black Sabbath, of course. Um. Lee is what I'm trying to say. Lee Agnew, your son. Yep. Uh, talk to me about having a family member and especially your son in a band. What's that like? Because as you were playing in the early days, he probably was standing backstage or side stage and he saw the band, he got to understand the band, and he mm. got to see sort of daddy play. And now your partner's in a band. Uh, sort of talk to me about yeah. how that feels.
4: Well, for the Really, you know, I've got I've got five sons and like four four of them are musicians, uh, very good musicians. And when when the guys were younger, you know, when I come back from uh, I come back from a tour and Lee was like 10, 10 eleven years old, he started playing drums. Uh, Stevie was playing guitar and Chris at that time played like keyboards, but he's become an amazing bass player now. He's a great bass player. Uh, and they would—we had a studio and stuff. And I used to jam with them. You know, when I come back, I used to play with. You know, when when I'd come back, and I'd play bass, and they would all play. So we've been playing. We've been playing together for years, and, uh, way, 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 way back. And when Lee was, uh, when they all grew up, they had their own bands, and they played in their own bands, and they played in bands together and things. So when when this when Darryl died, um, Lee had already he. When he wasn't working with his own band, and if we were uh, we were stuck for a drum tech, he would come out with us. You know, he come out. He toured pretty much around the world with as a um, as a as a drum tech uh, for for Darrell uh, for well, a good two or three years. So when Daryl died, it was the he was the obvious replacement. You know, because he's a great drummer. He knew every song we did. Outside in. He's also a very good singer, so he was great for backing vocals. So there was no need to look any further. It was going to, it was definitely always going to be Lee. And as far as you know, you'll find it with most musicians, and there's a lot of them around. That, that, especially my lot, that have got their sons playing in their bands. There's quite a few, Andy, Bonash and uh, guys with sweeties. Got uh, yeah. They've got them mixing and sound. They're different different guys playing.
1: Well, different. even cheap trick that I mentioned, uh, Dax yeah. Nielsen is playing with his dad Rick. It, it it's well, what you, you do.
4: Go, you see? but the thing is, when you're playing, when they're in, when they're in a band, you know, it's no it's not dad and son and that kind of thing. When you're in a band, it's the bass player and the drummer. You know, that's how you basically how you think when you're touring. You know, and uh, it's you don't think in terms of. Family ties, really. You know, it's uh,
1: only when different. a decision needs to be made, and then you say, "Listen to your dad."
4: <laughs> that's some chance of that happening as well, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, dream on,
1: dream on. And of course, uh, I'll just quickly mention Phil Campbell of, of Motorhead fame is out with his uh, sons too. So it, it, that's
4: that's yeah. right. There's a, I mean, there's, there's bunches of them, you know, around now because uh, and it's great. You know, it's really good. To do, uh, I mean, I've, 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 as I say, I've been playing, I've had Lee playing drums with me for, oh, I mean, for, well, he's, 40, he's 47 now. and it's, it's been 35 years. He's been, you know, one way or the other, been playing, you know, in studios and stuff with me, you know. So we'll, we know each other's style pretty, pretty good, you know. And he, yeah. played, he also played with Jimmy in a band, you know. When they met each other, they went to a rock college, uh, in, in Scotland, the Rock College up in Perth. And that's where they met. That's the reason that we've got Jimmy in the band. I met him through Lee, you know. I saw him playing in the band. They had a band called Trouble in Land. And Lee played drums, Jimmy's guitar. And that's the first time I saw Jimmy. And I thought, yeah, this guy's good. And it was many, many years later that's, uh, when it came to needing a guitar player that's when I approached him. So I'd never have met Jimmy if it hadn't been for Lee. So it's all kind of, it's all tied together, you know. No, they're all in the band.
1: No, they're all in the band. And, and um, <laughs> just a, a, a quick word about Daryl, of course, who passed away in ah. 99. It, it's it, it's not losing a band member. It's really losing a family member at that point, right? Well, yeah, we do I mean,
4: again, we'd been... Daryl, I mean, I met Daryl when he was, he was 16, um, when he used to come and see us. Uh, he played in a, a Scottish pipe band. You know, he was a marching drummer, and uh, he used to come along. Well, he's, they used to play all these gala things and, at the weekends, and he would go out with them, and then at night time he would come to the dance hall where we played. and he'd have his kilt and everything on. You know, he used to come up and have a, play a couple of songs with us at the drums. Uh, and that's when we met him, and, and, and we became, well, we just became pals at that age. You know, we're 16, 17 years old. Um so he played and within a year, he was in the band uh, since we were, well, since we were 17, 17, uh, so it's a long, long time, you know, we grew, we, we you, you could say we all grew up together, you know, so it was, uh, that was a big, again, it was a, uh, it was a big loss, at, uh, again, at the time, it's, all uh, well, coming up for 20 years, uh, and, uh it's, it, was, it was. What can I say? What can I say? It was a. It was a friend, your, your drummer died. But it was a. It was an old friend as well. You know. It was a. It was. It was a. It was a hard time. A hard
1: time. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and and but, uh, to me, it 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 just the co- the continuity of having a real family member come in. It just it just was so perfect. It just.
4: It, oh well, it was. It, it worked out fine. You know, as I say, they didn't feel that there was a there wasn't a big transition period there you know I mean what happened we we had to we came we we did a six week tour in America and we came home for a couple of weeks to have a break and then we went out to do the next six weeks Uh, but what happened is Daryl. well he died before the first show Um, and so we all came home but within within four weeks we were back out and did that tour then you know so, we, you know, it was we, we we didn't we didn't spend a I mean, there wasn't a big transition period there, you know, because because I think we knew right well we didn't know right away that there was a guy that could come in and 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 do it right away, you know, and do it right, you know. So, yeah. well, we were um, lucky there. Lucky well. uh,
1: Let me uh, talk to you quickly about a, a few albums, but sort of a a, a period in the band where there were sort of diminishing returns, 1984 to 1990, the band was in flux, Billy Ranking had left. No. Um, I
4: mean, the 80s were, the, 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 I mean, let's face it, the 80s sucked. Right, no more, they did. No, no more, the music in the 80s sucked. It was just, it was just. I mean, they should just forget that. You know, and, and the rock and roll calendar, it goes up to 1979 and then it starts in 1990 again. You know, it was just, that, that was a, that was a a space there that was uh, that nobody talks about. I mean all the all the the rock bands that were around when they disappeared that's when they disappeared. It was in the eighties when all the electronic stuff came out and the new romantics or whatever they called it that garbage. Uh, there was a couple of things came out. But all that that, that, that decade wasn't a, wasn't a time. The words rock and roll were never ever mentioned in that decade, you know rock wasn't really a word that was used in that decade to describe the music that was coming out. And it took up until basically it was... When you started getting the guitar bands coming back in in the 90s, like Oasis and stuff like that, Blur, all these guys, you know, it was great. You know, the, all the young guys all started playing guitars again. And it was, uh, oh, look at this. It was, uh, you know, it was like a guitar bands again. And it all happened again. But the eighties, knew. you know, it was it wasn't good. It wasn't a good time for us, and it wasn't a good time for a lot of bands. And there was a, and I was really just pleased that we actually, we didn't really sort of play the eighties. We survived the eighties, you know. And it was funny because we we were trudging. We toured so much uh, at that time, in America and Canada. But we were playing every sort of grotty place you could find. You know, you were you were playing. I mean, basically, it was bars, you know, that, that that was happening then, because rock bands couldn't get arrested. You know, it was it was it was so bad. So it was. Yeah, you know, I feel as if we, we did very well to to survive the eighties, and then of course, the nineties came in and was they started issuing, started making CDs. That was a great thing. Everybody had to re- replaced all their collection with CDs. So there was a whole big upsurge in and everything. Uh, it was just it was just a it was like a like a like a, a wind came in and blew it all away from the eighties and it all started again in the nineties.
1: Yeah, a nice shot in the arm, and and of course the album No Jive, Billy comes back, and yep. and that one sort of seemed to right the ship, if if that's the proper analogy for it, because that was a great. Uh, a great rock album for for the lack of a better word um
4: we, we did i mean it was Billy was a Billy was, a, he was a great guitar player a wonderful singer a good guitar player and a, and a very very good songwriter and and uh, and he had a definite style but, but he 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 was he was he was good fun to to be with you know i mean it was a great, it was a very very good band that that four pieces some of the <laughs> Some of the best laughs I've ever heard on the road was with that that outfit, with Billy myself Dan and daryl you know that was a was a great period that that ninety to sort of ninety four just before jimmy arrived but it was it was good fun, but then again, as I say, we were getting back into i mean rock music was 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 happening again you know and that was and that was great i mean you were there was there was a nice feeling about uh and the whole business you know it was a nice feeling it was uh, it was hard to describe. You had
1: to be there. I mean, but you—you you were. So well, you know what well I was. About. But yeah. yeah. Um, before I get on to sort of the classic classic albums, and I know we're going to run out of time because we, we can't we can't be doing this forever. But I'm very curious about the pre No Jive album, "Snakes and Ladders," because there's all kinds of gossip and rumors and some fact and pseudo facts. You did you or did you not play on it? What was the story with snakes and no, no, ladders?
4: No, 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 no. Well, what basically what happened is <clears throat> we snakes and ladders. I was <clears throat> never crazy about the material. I mean, right. that was the, the. I don't even count it as a Nazareth album, really. You know, it's um, what happened was uh, there were uh, a producer who really, really wanted to do a Nazareth. I mean, he was a big, big fan of Dan, and he was really wanting to do. A dance solo album, really. That was, that was the, the, All he was interested in was getting that vocal done, you know. And, I mean, we didn't have enough material for the album. I mean, we did four cover versions. And, you know, that's a lot. But it was four covers. And we were covering things, like classic songs that, you know, you should maybe stay away from, you know, that shouldn't be covered. So the whole feeling was a bit weird. And... Uh, the guy just didn't like. Uh, well, he didn't like the way that anybody played, really. So, what happened was we had. Uh, well, for a start, we had that uh, was electronic drums all the way through, programmed drums, uh, which Darrell was quite happy to. He was quite happy to do that. I played a couple of tracks on it, and he decided that you know, that, that that what I was playing, my bass player was not really for Nazareth, so we got another bass player. in and after another couple of tracks, it didn't really fancy what Manny was playing, so he got another guitar player in. So what happened was you had an album that was made by, well, Dan, uh, as, as, as the one thing that's on it, from Nazareth all the way through. So it's not really a Nazareth album, you know? I don't think I've... I've uh, uh, you know, it's not... I don't consider I don't it a Nazareth album, anyway. And a couple of tracks on it were Nazareth. It was funny, actually, because... Uh, there was one track I think that Manny and I played on a thing called "We Are Animals," and it became huge. It's the biggest, the biggest song that ever came out in Russia, like all over, which is half the world. <laughs> and it's a massive hit for us. And it was—I think it was the only song on the album that we actually played uh, as as Nazareth. So I should tell you something, you know. But no, it was never. I mean, whatever stories were heard about it, it was no secret. I mean, we weren't we weren't whispering about it at the time. It says it on the album, it was the people that played on it. You know, I mean, you get guests playing on different albums, but generally these guys, uh, they they made a record that was almost a Nazareth 3 record.
1: You know. That's a good term for it, Nazareth Three. That uh, free. That should be the, that. should be a sticker on on the cover. Um, that
4: was a warning, right? No, I mean it was just. I mean for me, it was it was just. Uh, I never. I don't know if I've ever actually played the record. But then again, you don't really play your own albums after. you By the time you've recorded them, uh, you know. By the time they get all mixed, you think, okay, I'll have a listen to it, and you play it through, and okay, that's it. That's it. So, and you don't tend to. You play it in ten years' time, then then you start to enjoy it, you know. But, uh, that one I've never ever, I've never really ever had the. Uh, it was a lot of play. There was a lot of good playing on it. Um, there was a there was a lot of fine musicianship on it. It was very, and, but it wasn't us. <laughs> it was it was, uh, it was other guys, you know. And as I say, it was a it was a it was a production. It was a whole production thing, you know. That uh, uh, it's it happened. It's done, and um, Glad it was a way, way, way in the distant past.
1: Yeah, and and it was sort of the 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 last one that Manny played on. Uh, we we haven't spoken about him at all, but uh, you mentioned that this one had four covers, and you are known for a cover, "Love Hurts" by the Everly Brothers. Most yeah. people when they hear "Love Hurts," they think Nazareth. Nazareth and
4: that's right, they do it, you see? That's the secret, though. You see, yeah. what you do is you get a song and you make it yours. And you, and but you take a song that probably wasn't that well known. Now the wolf Hearts had been recorded about forty odd times, but it was recorded as uh, album tracks by all these people. I mean, it was, but we actually took that thing and made it very, very well known. You know. Uh, when we did the Joni Mitchell this flight tonight I mean I, I mean Johnny loved what we did with it but there's no way you can compare what we did with it to the original uh, you know we absolutely uh, just made that into a, into a rock song and uh, it wasn't a big big known song but that's, that's fine that's okay you can do that and you can do these and you, we do covers we did a big we did a cover of a thing called My White Bicycle over here uh, we got a huge hit with it it was a kind of practically unknown, the record that was when it came out initially. No, Now, you can do that with all songs, but there's songs that every band will tell you they should never be touched, they should never be... Bre- River Deep, Mountain High. And many times you hear people singing that and say, no, please don't do that, because that's such a classic. It's just such a classic that it shouldn't be touched, you know. You can't make it yours, it's just so well known. Well, we did that on... The, well, rather... It was decided to do that on uh, on snakes and ladders. We did helpless, uh, which is Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, which is a classic. Should never have been touched as far as I'm concerned. And we did peace of my heart. Well, well uh, Janice Joplin did that. Not bad, you know. <laughs> That's another classic. So what we did was we were starting to take on classics then. And I don't think that you know I didn't I didn't I never felt comfortable with that you know yeah sometimes
3: when you
1: take know, on
4: a so, classic you know if you take someone that's a, if you take someone that's got to be worked on and make it yours but you can never make those songs yours you know never never, never you know yeah so yeah. that was all that. so I, you know I was never I was I wasn't a big fan of what was
1: going on. Yeah, but but Love Hurts really is your your twist and shout moment.
4: Oh, where, where... that was that was that was just amazing. But that you see the the version that we the we have the, the version that we used to love of Love Hurts was uh, Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris, and that was on Graham Parsons' Grievous Angel album. And we used to play that in our van when we were traveling around. The same as we used to play Johnny's This Way Tonight, you know. And it was things that we used to hear when we were traveling through the night. we always say, Oh, we must. We must do something with those songs, you know. And that's what we did. We, and, and we did Love Hearts And Love Hearts wasn't even done as a single. It was done as a B-side. It was done so that we didn't need to take any songs off our album to put on a B-side. We thought, we'll do the album, which was "Here of the Dark. And then when we take a single off it, we'll, we'll have other songs to put on the B-side without stripping the album. And we were going to put Love Hearts on as a B-side. It was it was recorded after the album was recorded. It was And it was no... It would never have been on the album. In fact, uh, if you, throughout the world with that album, the only place that, that um, here that, that uh, Love Hearts is on the album is on the American copy. Uh, throughout the rest of the world it's a song called Guilty. the the slow song on it. Love Hearts isn't on it. Uh, all throughout Europe, and Brazil, and all, well, everywhere. Uh, just, just America. The, and it was Jerry Moss at uh, and m Records. Is when he was a president and a man with very good musical taste as well. And uh, when he heard the album and he heard this thing that we were going to do as a B side, he couldn't believe it. He said, No, 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 no. Take Guilty off and put this on. This is is going on the American copy. And uh, I thank thank Jerry in my prayers every night for.
1: uh, And it goes to show the importance of the American market because that really, at least I thought. To me, in, in the States, that's the one that sort of turned it around and brought you to that oh, next...
4: Oh, that was it. I mean, after, after we put it on, it was a hit throughout the world. That. I mean, but, I mean it, was, it wasn't on that album. Nobody had heard it until it was released in America. I mean, we'd released that album. you got to remember, that album had been out for a year uh, here in Britain, almost before Love Hurts was a... We didn't get a hit with Love Hurts until, whoa, oh, because beginning of 77 I think it was the album came out in 75 in fact when it came out in uh, America uh, well first it wasn't a hit album when it came out uh, the album was out for a long 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 time and there was a guy and uh, a DJ and and a a radio station in Beaumont in Texas who kept playing it, he just kept playing it and he loved it and he kept playing it and it leaked out of there and it snuck out into the airwaves, and it became a huge hit. But the album had been out for a good while before that happened. I mean, for months it had been out before that. Uh, This this, uh, Love Hurts snuck out there. And then, of course, once that became a hit, then all the college stations at the time, you know, um, were going away back to the mid-'70s, you know where you couldn't say certain rude words on the radio, you know? And, I mean, Son of a Bitch was considered incredibly rude. We were going to call it the album, oh, yeah. then, but, uh, but, of course, A&M went, oh, well, Sears won't sell it, you can't do that, you can't call it that. And we thought, well, why not, because John Wayne says that, you know? We thought it was fine, but uh, no, 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 you can't call it that. So what to think up another title for it. Uh, but where we come from, it, it would have meant nothing, you know? So uh, when, when, we, when we brought the album out, all, you had all the college stations at that time, and they were big, big time in America and Canada, all the college stations, the university stations, they pretty much, they, they, they used to play the stuff, they used to break records, you know, and of course they hooked on to Son of a Bitch, they, they hooked on to that one, and they played it stupid. And, of course, they couldn't play it on E and m radio, so it was getting played, and everybody was tuning into the college stations. So it became a huge hit. So that whole album was, you know, it was... Uh, it, was it, it, it became a big hit by mistake. And I'm very happy about it.
1: Very happy about it. And, of course, the college stations played it because of the sort of swear words at the time. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah, made yeah, it, it naughty good, and, of course, know, college yeah, radio you know, like I mean,
4: Nowadays it would mean nothing. No, when you see the lyrics to, my God, I mean, come on. <laughs> she was out now. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, at the time it was considered quite risque. But you see, the thing is, when we were singing it wasn't even a swear word to us, you see. Because in Britain nobody used that term. Nobody uses that term at all. I mean, it's just, it's an Americanism that's uh, that we hear, you know, that, that we'd see in the I used to hear it with, all oh, oh, the road crew, well, everybody, everybody said it, uh, and it was, you know, in the movies, you know, we'd maybe see it, but it was not, a, it's not a British thing, nobody uses, used that, so for where we, for where we come from, it wasn't even as swear word. you know, it was, just, it was just, it was an expression, you know, of course, then we realised that, then we, then we were told that in America, it was, you know, it was. it was frowned upon.
1: Well, fair enough. But, uh, well, fair enough. But it 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 worked. We're we're, <laughs> we're reaching an hour, so let me let me start wrapping up with just a couple more questions on on albums here. But but since we're on Hair of the Dog, let's just stay there for a second. Uh, Manny Charlton comes in and produces it. He he steps uh-huh. up and was there a danger in having a band member produce an album? Now this one, of course, worked out, but. How do you sort of see that? Should should there be sort of an, an objective, subjective ear in a studio? No, no, no.
4: Actually, we just we all just thought we never even thought about it like that. We always uh, we figured that we, what we said is let's produce it ourselves. You know that was that's that's the the words we thought by that time. We said okay, we're going to make an album, but we're going to produce this one ourselves. So Manny was the guy. who was daft about recording and everything. He was crazy about recording. And stuff. So he he became. Named the producer, but we we all we all felt as if we were we were making the records, you know, all through that that period. Every, everybody everybody's had their 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 shout. So that was that Manny has always liked uh, is he always liked sounds more than anything. You know, sound was his thing. You know, he liked the noise. He liked the, to get the certain noise, and uh, and he would uh, and 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 he was he was always good with, with well on that album he was good with the engineer that we linked up with and uh, created that got that got that great sound you know from his guitar and and and, and, it, and it was great and it, and it made uh, it made a great but I mean, we never really thought at the time overhanding handing power to anybody it wasn't like that it was like we were all going out to the studio and say okay then what are we going to do and you know he he became the producer <laughs> that was it it was it was no big uh, it was no big decision you know. Uh,
1: but do, are you still by the way in contact with Manny or is that s- uh, ship not, sort of thing? No, not side? really much. No, he was in Spain
4: now I believe. But I mean there's, there, there would be no reason for us being. Uh, you know I haven't seen the guys for. Oh, I think the last thing oh, I think I saw him back. He came to see us when we played in Texas and uh, I think that was about nineteen. 19- Mm, just just after Daniel died, I think. So we have going back about eighteen years or something. The last time
1: I saw him. Uh, and then I'll move on to the last album. Just but on, on Manny, was, was it disappointing when he chose to leave, when, or when when the band and him chose to not work together anymore?
4: No, I think I think you know, it had run its course by that time, you know.
1: And then I I I'll finish we with. The... We'd, all
4: had, we'd, we'd all pretty much uh, had enough of each other by then.
1: C'est assez, as we say in French, it's enough. Um, yeah. uh and we'll finish on this one, uh, another one that sort of really solidified the band's reputation. The yeah. Uh, talk to me about that album and, and, and looking back historically, uh, its importance and, and sort of getting in the studio, but also Roger Glover. I mean, of course, Deep Purple's Roger Glover had worked on previous albums with you. What was it like to have him in there and just, just sort of... If you can give me that the the, the historical significance of, of that one and what it means to you looking back on it and those, you know, nine songs.
4: Yeah, well what happened is when we made the first album, Nazareth, you know, we'd just written a we'd written a bunch of songs, we weren't really decided what kind of band we were going to be. There was a bit of rock on it, there was a bit of this, a bit of that. And then we did the second album and at that time we were we were into a lot of acoustic things that were going on at the time. We never really made up our mind, you know, although live, we were always a rock band. And we made exercises, and it was, uh, I think my mother got a copy and two or three other people, but that was it. It was, uh, and, and, and it was, it had no direction whatsoever on it. But then we wrote all the songs for Razmanaz, and we were writing songs. And then we knew, right, this is it, we're a rock band. There's no two ways about it, this is what we are, And we were out touring with Deep Purple. We'd already toured, we took us on our first American tour and we went with them out there. So we'd got to know the guys pretty well and we'd play with them a few times. So in uh, 72, the late 72, 72 we went to America with them. Late in 72, I think, they they were touring Britain and they took us out there as their opening band in Britain. And we were playing songs from Rasmun Live. We were playing it for months before we recorded it and we were really enjoying playing these songs. At the time, we'd been looking for a producer. There was different guys we thought about getting to produce the album. Uh, at one point, we talked about Pete Townshend, another one was Jimmy Page. These were people we were thinking about to, 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 to talk to about it. And we're sitting and talking to you. Roger in uh, Newcastle one night. And we just played in Newcastle, and uh, we're sitting after the gig and back in the hotel. And we thought, and he said, uh, we are talking producers and he said I would like to produce it and we thought oh well you know why not and this is guy I mean we'd know he's done a bit of production with Deep Purple and different things different bands with Ronnie Deal they, they'd worked with Ronnie and that so we said yeah that sounds right. and he, he really had ideas about the songs it was, he really liked the material we were doing it was really great to have somebody getting off on what we are doing because he'd heard us you know playing it live every night on that tour So it was him that suggested, because we we weren't really happy in the studios, him that suggested that we make it the album in a mobile studio up in our place, in our rehearsal place in Scotland. He said, if that's where you're more comfortable, let's do it up there. So we thought, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So the the guy had a lot of good ideas. And it was the first time that we'd had a producer, a real producer, you know? And, uh, well, in the second album, actually, the producer, and that was Roy Baker.
1: Right, Roy Thomas Baker, who, of course... (laughs) Uh, has yeah, done Queen and album. and he also did a Cheap Trick album. <laughs>
4: I got a guy. But that was that was back in his starting days. He was he was at his same state in his career as we were in ours. So he was time.
1: very green back
4: then. Yeah, I mean, like, we got we got Roger and and uh, actually working with the guy and he's he was great to work with. He had good ideas. He he knew how to get a good performance from everybody and. He, he was just—he he, just—he just knew everybody's strengths and he knew how to put them together, and he just got the—and he got that—that that sort of what the band was on stage. He got it onto—he got it onto record. And when we—when Raza and I asked well, we when you—when you we were making the record that it was going to be a, hit. And when and when you we had broken an angel, the song that was going to be a hit," so it wasn't really a surprise when it was great that it was a hit. But it wasn't a surprise because when it came out, we just knew it was going to be there, you know. And it was a huge hit for us in Europe. And then, of course, the second one, Loud and Proud, again. And it was Roger again. And uh, we did we went through the same kind of thing. We even we, we recorded on the same mobile studio in the same place, up at a rehearsal place. Uh, and then we did the third album, uh, Rampant. And Rampant. that was again, that was on the Stones mobile. And we took that out to Switzerland. And we recorded that. We took the mobile out there because they'd done smoking the water out there. Uh, and uh, on the Stones mobile down in the basement of the convention centre, so we did the very same thing. He took us back there, and we recorded the, the third album that we did. And that was the last album we did with him, because we figured by that time, yeah, it was three, three albums. It was time to get you know a, a change. Just time to get a change. We well, thought that as well.
1: I agree with very, that too. Very,
4: we're still very good friends with Roger. You know, I still see him. I uh, think
1: uh, when a producer starts doing three, four, or five albums. That also has a sort of staleness to it because you need those well, sort of fresh ears in there. And with Rampant, you had Roger sort of handing it over slowly to Manny, and so you had this transition production yeah. team. Yeah, well,
4: so the, yeah. so for some people, yeah, but you see, I would. Uh, uh, I, we've got the. I've got exactly the. Well, the best producer I've ever worked with now is a young Jan Rulli, and he's done this album with us, and he did the last three. This is his fourth album with us, and I wouldn't make an album without Jan, you know, as, as, and I met him when he was a young guy uh, in Switzerland 12 years ago, and I've made now four albums with him. And, you know, I really don't think that, uh, in some cases it might be, yeah, people get stale, maybe maybe like that, but then I've got to point to George Martin, you know, and I don't think the Beatles uh, did, 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 did it okay having the same producer for all their albums, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't, it's, it's dependent it's what the band are like and what they're, you know, and just how how much the producer actually develops as well. If you get a guy that's uh, learning all the time and, and going forward all the time, I think that helps the band as well. You know, somebody that's producing all the time and they're doing new projects all the time, they're doing new music all the time, then they bring that to your project as well, you know? Right. So experience right. has got a lot to do with it as well, you
1: know? Let, let me so restate that then. There's different,
4: there's different schools of thought on that one,
1: you know. Yeah, let me restate that then. I, I don't mean to insult <coughs> the greats like Bob Ezrin and all that, and who've done yeah. great stuff with Alice Cooper. Uh, but uh, fresh ears uh, is, is also is is also nice because it adds fresh perspective sometimes. Certainly,
4: so, certainly. I mean, just, right. I see, We did that. We did that, and uh, we did that when we did Hear of the dog, like you said. We got money and but then he was there for we did what four five. I can't remember now. Uh, quite a few albums with money, uh, and and it was the same thing there. It was like, well, it's time somebody else, you know, had to bring their bring their ideas to it, you know, because when you're working with a guy that's in the band as a producer, nobody's bringing fresh ideas to it. You're, you all live together, you all travel together, you're going through the same experiences together. When you go to the studio. You know, you made the last album together, you've seen each other just about every day since the last album. So, you know, it's kind it's harder, I think, you know, to, to get it fresh when you're working with guys that are in the band. You're basically just working yourselves, you know. You don't have an outside influence. You, you, there is no outside influence because it's you guys in the band that are doing it, you know. So that's when it's quite handy to get an outside
1: producer in, you know. And that's now you've got Yan Rouillet, which I don't know yeah. much about. Uh, but uh, well, so so, I, I lied. Let's let me just do one last one between Bugaloo and getting uh, Yan to come in and do the news with you. There was a ten-year gap. Were you
4: sort certain- of uh, there was like basically no. Um, um, I mean, there was a ten-year gap because there was no no record company uh, remotely interested. And uh, and doing anything, you know, we we with we, we, nobody, you know, you don't, you, no no approaches, nothing whatsoever. Nobody mentioned let's make a new album. It was it, it was it was never even talked about, you know. We'd, we'd, it was a, a very dry period from from uh, doing new stuff. Uh, and it was not, what happened is we met uh, we met a guy that that worked with us <clears throat> in the seventies. In the uh, the 80s, he worked with Phonogram in Hamburg. Right. And he'd worked with us for years. And he got us, he worked on big, big hit records over there for us, G Moan and things like that. And he'd retired from the business for about 15 years, 20 years or something. I think he'd been living in Brazil. And he saw us anyway. We were out touring in Europe. And he said, "Why are you guys not recording?" You said, "Well, never really. Nobody's approached us. And, you know, we, we won't bother them if they don't bother us." And he said, oh, "I've got to make another album. I've got to make an album in Nazareth. That was the start of a new recording career for us. You know, so I'm glad we met him. And uh, and now you see, it's been you know it's been a busy twelve years making records.
1: Yeah, the news, big dogs, rock and roll, telephone, and uh, the new one which will be out. What hopefully. one is going to be? <laughs> Whatever I, I say, just call it Mitch. That sounds like a great title to me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but uh, boy, I, there, there's so much history, and I think we've only sort of scraped the top. But we're an hour in, and I think uh, I think uh, we'll 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 keep it for when the new album comes out. We'll do a part two. But thank you certainly, so much.
4: Certainly. Well, I mean, I think we're going to be. I, I know that I've got a bunch of dates in at the moment uh, for Canada in August. But I do believe that we're coming across. Uh, you know, we, we start out west as usual, and I think. Uh, but I do believe that there, there is talk about Ontario and Quebec again. So I hope. I hope so because I'd love to. I'd love to come back and play that same gig in Montreal again. I think we could. You know. If that, that, um,
1: oh, absolutely. It's too
4: soon. I don't know, but I'd like. I'd like to come back again and play it again. Yeah. Uh, it certainly won't be as long. Coming back as it was since the last time we played, you know, because it was too long. You know, when we when we came up uh, there, it was it was it was too long since I've, I've, I've been up up in Montreal. Yeah,
1: year. and and it was a great show. And yeah, the the dates that I've seen, I believe, are all sort of uh, British Columbia and maybe Alberta, if I'm not mistaken. But it's it's on the other side, the the left coast. So
4: oh, so I mean, it's a different country. You know, it's, it really yeah, is. I mean, it's, Canada, is crazy enough in Canada, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going out. The first tour this year, well, I've got the first gig we've got coming up is, a, is a, up in the Alps as a festival, the Full Metal Mountain Festival. But then we go into Poland for um, three shows, and then we're into Russia. Now, there's a big country, because, I mean, they've got something like 11 time zones, you know? So when you play in, if you play in Kaliningrad, which is on the Baltic, and then you go way over to um, Vladivostok. I mean, you're talking. You know, it this, this makes even Canada look small, <laughs> which is something to say.
1: Which is something but, to uh, say.
4: Because it's, it's massive, you know. And uh, we tour there a lot. And uh, well, for this this year, for instance, we'll do like three tours there this year, just to sort of half cover the place, you know. That's, uh, but we go there quite 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 a lot. You
1: know. I'll just say, so, I, as a Canadian, I always find it interesting when. Um, People that have no knowledge of the country book or, or route tours because I've seen, you know, you've seen Vancouver to to Winnipeg to New oh, Brunswick oh, right. to Montreal and you go, dude, that's oh, it's not mental. <laughs>
4: that's absolutely mental. <laughs> I, I mean, especially if you're doing it, if you're doing like the tour bus, you know, you're you're okay, you're okay, you can you can do B.C. It's okay. You come into Alberta, okay, okay, okay. You come to Regina, mm -hmm, fine, you're still okay, and then Winnipeg. That's that's gonna win it when you're 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 touring, you know, with a bus, uh, and then start making your way back the way. But then when they jump to, you know, they go from there and they go to Nova Scotia, you know, and you're going, hang on a minute, you know, that's uh, that's people just don't realise how big that place is, you know, and just, I mean, what they don't just realise just how big Quebec is alone or Ontario. I mean, these are. Any place else in the world? These are countries. You know, in fact, they're bigger than some countries.
1: They really are, and, and it's just amusing when I when I see them have these sort of three shows in four nights, and you realize there's a twelve hour or more bus ride. And they're like, "Oh, oh it's Canada." Aye, aye. They're all next to each other. It's like, no, they're
4: not. Oh, <laughs> that's crazy. That's the first thing I do when the, you know, when they come with the when they come with the the, the tour dates. I'm, well, actually, if you, we we're booked by a Canadian agent, so that's. That's usually okay because he knows, they know, they live there. You know, they know what size the country is. But if you get somebody else booking tours up, and you do, you get people booking tours up in Canada. You get, when I mean, we get guys here, you know, you get guys in Germany. You know, you've got a German agent and he's in Munich or he's in Frankfurt, you know, and he's booking bands out to Canada. And you're going, Excuse me, pal, you know, this isn't like Germany and France. You know, this is, uh, you know, from, from Vancouver to Winnipeg, that's quite a stretch. You know,
1: you know. Especially so to, when they book it in I, I
4: January or what, February. What we're going to do is we send them up. <laughs> uh, some of these guys that we worked with in the past, we send them up a, a, a World Atlas, you know, for the Christmas, you know, so they could just see where everyone has. Send
1: them a globe. That's funny. <laughs> uh, a great, great pleasure, uh, and and hopefully we won't have any farewell tours uh, yet. I, 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 just keep going. <laughs> keep, keep bringing the music, and uh, Pete, just... Mayor Sibuku, thank you so much. Well, uh, it was nice pleasure. talking
4: to you, Mitch. Take it easy, and I uh, hope, for, like I say, um, give me a ring if when we're coming up, when we're coming up, the next time we're up and you're papped, uh, give me a call. And, absolutely, uh, and,
3: and
1: you've and, got the number
4: now. You can call me up and let me know. You absolutely, come on, say hello. Okay, and,
1: and yeah, we'll we'll plug the new album when it comes out, uh, hopefully July much.
4: August, and I'll, I'll I'll let you know the name as soon as we find it. I'll get back to you and let you know the name first.
1: Okay? Thank you, sir. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you. Right, cheers, mate. Bye. bye. bye now. Bye. Bye. Cheers. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Big thank you to Pete Agnew. Great, great uh, chat about the band's history. And, of course, uh, singer Dan McCafferty, the new band, uh, Daryl, uh, Sweet, everything. Just thank you. Carl Sentence, by the way, new, new singer. Check out the band if they come to town. They are just a wonderful, wonderful... Um, Band outfit? Did you? Were you, by the way, Michael? A Nazareth fan at all?
0: Of course. I mean, I I was one of those guys where. When I gravitated to a band it, it was all about that particular band Nazareth wasn't one of those bands that I really gravitated to in the sense that that's all I listened to or or tried to learn but i, I respect them and love them and appreciate everything yeah. that they've done that's yeah. phenomenal you yeah. know Hair phenomenal
1: stuff. now back to phenomenal we're we're into the top four of your uh discography best of list. No More Hell to Pay from 2013. Now, by the way, this is what I find interesting. Uh, in the top sort of four, it really is the more modern day uh, albums, the, the, the recent releases. So No More Hell to Pay. Now, I got to say, fans, when that came out, were just all over this. They were like, wow, it's one of the greatest albums you've ever made, so on and so forth. Uh, talk to me about why that one is at number four.
0: Well, that was our comeback album. Uh, even though we made Reborn in 05 and, uh, you know, uh, Murder by Pride, obviously, and, and we were trying to f- come back. To me, No More Hell to Pay was it. That was the one that said and it was all original, not a cover album. But it was where we said to the world, we're back. The songs are back. The fire is back. The guitar solos are back. The, yeah, the harmonies are back. The uh the production is back. Although there's some things about the production that bother me. We're still kind of trying to find our way in that sense. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a little low in light and a little hot. Uh, we, we, we tend to uh, back in those times, uh, we got into the loud wars of trying to master everything as loud as everything else. And you lose your transients and your dynamics and your punch that you had in the original mixes. Um, uh, so that album is a little hot and a little squashed in that regard, uh, in compression. But that being said, uh, I place it high on the list because it's it's like who we want to be and what we want to be. And I, I just think that from start to finish, the continuity, the flow of that album is perfect.
1: Yeah, it Truly really is. perfect. And when you look at the backstory, too, you know, the ones in the 80s and, and the, you know, against the law in the 90s, there's all kinds of stuff like we were talking about divorces and personal stuff. And, but here it's like, you know what? We don't have to make an album. We're doing this cause we want to, and it's fun. And there's no record company saying you need six singles for radio. So that there must be a certain freedom and a certain breathing space where you just go, we're just going to make an album. And it's amazing.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And we really don't have to make any albums. And some bands have chosen that path like ah oh, we don't we don't make albums anymore because it's not worth it, or you know it, it's a waste of time, or it's this or it's that. Nobody buys albums anyway, and you know when I hear people say that people in bands in some big bands that will leave nameless, uh, man, I scratch my head on that one i and I just think, why don't you just get out then and quit why yeah. why are you why are you even doing it because the reason why we all started doing music was for the love of the song, the love of music and creating music. And to not have that excitement about creating any longer, to me, it, it, that says that it's time for you to hang it up and quit and pack up your cables and your guitars and just, just stop.
1: You see, I agree because they, they they go from being an artist to just being sort of a commercial. And I ask this question all the time of bands, especially the classic era ones, why bother making a new album? And the, the ones that answer me, well, I'm an artist. That's what I do. I get this little sort of, you know, warm feeling in, in my heart. Yeah. And I go, I go, yeah, you know, that's the, that's the right answers. And then the right. other ones that go, well, we don't need to. And it's like, well, but you're an artist. You're, you're, you're supposed to create, it's not supposed to be about, is it going to sell me a hundred thousand copies? It's supposed to be, I make songs because, that's what I do, exactly. And, yeah, and, and that's
0: uh, exciting when you sell well and and all that stuff's exciting. Yes. But that's to me, uh, and, and some people might say that uh, I'm uh, not being a very uh, good businessman uh, saying this. But man, I'd probably uh, take out a mortgage on my house to go record an album if yeah. I couldn't afford it or if a label didn't get behind us. I would pay for it out of pocket because that drive and that desire is so intense for the love of music and creating new music that I would never stop. The only time I'll stop is when I'm when I'm uh you know, not breathing anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it it's it's a silly answer to say to me or when or when I hear it when they say, Well, you know, it's it's not worth it or people are just going to steal it or it's like, so what an artist creates because an artist creates. And, and anyway, uh, let's get yeah, on yeah, to yeah. Uh, where are we here? Number three, numero trois uh, came out in 2015. Again, fans all over the internet loved it, spoke about it, made a lot of top 10 lists that year. It is fallen.
0: It's a little darker, Yep. No More Hell to Pay. It's a little beefier, a little little thicker. Uh, and, and that's why I place it a little higher, uh, because in terms of the production sense, I feel like it sounds a little bit better to my ears, just a little fatter and punchier. And I like that. Uh, <clears throat> does it have uh, the, the song quality that No More Hell to Pay has? It's certainly neck and neck. Uh, There might be uh, one or two songs that I might like a little better on no more hell to pay. But that being said, I just feel fallen a little bit better. Uh, So that's why I I tossed and turned over that of putting no more hell to pay in its position and it in no more hell's position. But I went with, uh, you know, what you see now and uh, you know, I stand by it. I totally stand by it. And, 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 you know, it, it's so interesting. Now people just assume, oh yeah, of course he's going to say that. It, with all the new stuff, all bands say that. Blah, 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 blah. Well, no, because I just proved that point to be wrong by putting the next album at number two. Yes, which is a classic album, "Soldiers Under Command."
1: Correct, numero two, "Soldiers Under Command." That that is uh, Michael Wagner, of course, who's yep. just a brilliant brilliant producers. So uh, talk to me about that. Why number two? And then maybe just a quick word about working with Michael, because uh, I guess anybody who has Michael, like Michael Sweet, Michael Wagner, Mitch, which is a (laughs) Michael derivative, it's it's just wonderful, right? It absolutely
0: is. Of course. Yeah. Uh, That album has so many positive memories and, and so many things that came together. At a very special time in in, in history of the band, and it, that will never be repeated. You know, it was in the surge and the explosive time of eighties uh, hair metal, if you want to call it that. Arena metal, whatever, arena rock, whatever M- you want to
1: call it. Melodic hard rock, because. If you say you hair go. metal, you get, I was talking to Don Dawkins the other day, and he said, oh, I hate the term hair metal. And it's like, but so what? I, I just don't understand why people hate the term. I mean.
0: Well, usually those are the guys, the guys that say they hate the term are the guys that don't have hair any longer. <laughs>
1: so, but but it's, a, it's a fine term, but let, let's call it melodic hard so give rock. Me,
0: give me a couple of years and I'll be telling you I hate hair metal.
1: too. Right. But, but uh, w- w- why is this no. the rock that makes me roll? In all seriousness,
0: Soldiers Under Command was a time where we were really starting to take off. Popularity of the band was really starting to climb and build. It was our first chance of working with the world-renowned, at least in our eyes at the time, producer, Michael Wagner. And he wanted to work with us. He was just as excited to work with us as we were to work with him. And we had all these songs Still to this day I feel some of our best songs. I'll even say our best song. Soldiers under Command, you're not gonna top that. You're just not. That's the that's the classic striper signature sound and song. And anyone that argues that it's fine, whatever. But it is. And it's still the song when we play live that gets the greatest response out of any other song that we play. So yeah. Uh, and then you got songs like First Love and, you know, you just got some, you, you got Surrender and A Rock That Makes Me Real. There's so many cool songs and there was such an energy and you could really feel and get the sense that we enjoyed every second of making that album. And it comes through in the tracks. And it was such a special time. And for those reasons, as they say in Shark Tank, I'm out. No, uh, for those reasons, that's why it's at the top of my list.
1: Yeah, it's such a great album. Now, Number one, numero uno. Interesting, because uh, when this airs, the album will still be unreleased. I've had a chance to to preview it. Uh, thank you to uh, Frontiers. But God damn evil. The new album. Now, you know, when you listen to Paul Stanley and, and Gene Simmons, every new album is the greatest album since Destroyer, and it's the greatest album ever made. <laughs> so, so... <laughs>
2: Before fans
1: get all over you here, is it really, (laughs) really that good? Is it just because it's the new one? Um, I think it's great. I mean, I look at, um, like I said, that song, Can't Live Without Your Love. (sighs) Well, look,
0: here's the thing, too, Mitch. Once you hear it in its entirety and you live with it, if you don't call me back and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is the best album you guys have ever done. I'll be shocked, not upset, but shocked because that is what's taken place with everyone that has heard it in its entirety. Agreed. Uh, within our camp and our circle, uh, people that other our agents and publicists and labels and and you know, everyone's has come back and said, "Wow," and it really is our best
1: for so many reasons. Um, Maybe you should call so, it goddamn good then instead of goddamn <laughs> evil. I like that. That's yeah. funny.
0: Yeah that's awesome and i'm sure i'm sure when people hear it they may but then then it would be you know the, the thing is about that statement everyone's up in arms about is it's it's a statement and a prayer request uh, seeing all the evil and the level of evil that we've seen over the past few years uh, the vegas shooting the, the re- most recent school shooting and we're just all kind of scratching our heads saying oh my gosh i never thought i'd see this in my lifetime uh, especially the vegas shooting worst in the history of, of, the, of the US, certainly. Uh, evil is, is really, really out of control. So we felt like this was a good time to release such a title. And it's a prayer request. We're asking God to damn evil. It's not a swear. We're not trying to go for the shock value and make people be up in arms over our title. It's nothing to do with that. But that being said, we feel that the whole package, the artwork, right, the production, the songs, the performances, the energy it's a new band. We've got a new bass player. Yep. Uh, you know, for so many reasons, so many, this is a very special time for us, and we have that excitement at that same level back in the '80s that we had back then now. And we really believe this is our best album, and it represents the band like no other album we've ever released.
1: And I would say also, from the fan perspective, Striper to me is one of those rare bands that is progressively getting better with age. There, and, and there's two bands that I see that, and and a lot of American fans may not know, but Thunder out of the UK and and you guys, you're just progressively, it's as if you've hit a comfort zone and it's you're not making stuff that's to please radio or you're just making the best rock music that you know how to make. And, and between you and Thunder, Striper and Thunder, it's just great to be a fan these days because you've re- you're in that zone, you know, like a like a football player or a hockey player. You're in the zone and it just gets better and better with every release. And
0: uh... well, we're trying. I mean, we're really trying. And in the next release, we're going to try to outdo Goddamn evil. And hopefully we will you know and and we we do feel like we're on a roll and and those creative juices and and the waters are overflowing from the well you know and there's just just this creative explosion within this band and we're really excited about it and that's spreading to our fans as well and uh, we couldn't be happier with where we're at
1: and and for you it extends beyond Striper because, and you know what, let's see where you would rank these ones. But you've got One Sided War from 2016, which you squeezed in between the Sweet and Lynch stuff and the Striper stuff. But but that one with um, Will Hunt and uh, Joel Hoekstra and Ethan Brosh, I mean, what a band. What song? I mean, where where would you put One-sided War? Now I I know we're not doing we're doing a striper list, but
0: I know. Well, I'd put it high up on the list. It would it would probably be it, it could be a contender for the number one spot. Certainly the number two spot. At at most the number three spot. Uh, at the very lowest, uh, it would be high up there. And the reason why it would be high up there is because there's an energy level. The musicianship is off the charts. Um, the songs the videos everything just really worked with that album sadly though it's not a striper album yeah and you know what happens is the minute you do something solo obviously you're not going to gain the respect of all the fans of the band that you're in you know uh and and i understand that i get it
1: but it's a but it's it's as much a striper album as reborn was right
0: (laughs) much more so yes much more so in the in the terms in the sense of quality absolutely
1: oh yeah oh yeah uh,
0: so you know i i think that that album that album is up there man and the feedback that i've gotten from the people that have heard it and who have it have said the very same thing yeah so uh, i'd put it high up on the list man uh, i really would um and then there's a number truth. Uh, it was another solo album I did. I'd put that high on the list because that really came from an emotional time in my life. I I put all my gear in a closet and didn't do music for a while, and I basically was going to quit music. Uh, and I wrote those songs while I was working out in the cranberry bogs of the family business. And I would literally climb out of the bogs, it, cold and wet, in my hip waders, and, and pencil down lyrics uh, on on lunch break.
1: That's hilarious. Uh,
0: so, you know, my hands are bleeding. I'm wrapping them up from blisters. And, you know, so a lot of tears, blood, sweat and tears went into that album. And I think it's a really cool eclectic album. And Bob Marlette produced it. And it's very special to me. So I put that high too. The other album is my first solo album.
1: Right. I was going to ask you about that because cause that one came out at, at a sort of a, a weird time in your career where Striper was no longer Striper and, and Nirvana had killed radio. So it's right. like, oof, it, it was almost to the point where it's like, why bother? I can't compete com- p- compete with the forces that are around me, but you put it out, and where would you put that?
0: Uh, I'd put it high on the list, too, although I don't listen to it as often or as much. Uh, it's very arena rock, very produced, but there's, there's a, a time and a place for that. Uh, it's very special to me because Striper released against the law, and it basically bombed. Uh, I left the band to get my family and my priorities in order because I was putting my family, my marriage almost broke up uh, and, and ended in divorce. So I wanted to get that in order, and I did. I took time off from music, and then I made that album at a time where that kind of music was not happening at all. And when it came out, it sold 250000 It outsold Striper uh, almost three to one. That's okay? amazing. Not a lot of, That's spe- a lot of people know that.
1: But yeah. By the way, I would love to see the one-sided war band, if we can call it that, with, with Joel and Ethan's and Will retake that first solo album. Because I think those songs just didn't get their due. And that new energy that Joel and yourself, who are both at the top of their game in 2018 – to read cut those would just be spectacular. Oh, it'd, be, it'd be amazing. And
0: a lot of the drums on that album are, aren't even – it's not even a real drummer. Now, the drums that are real drums is a guy named Jamie Wallum who plays for uh, Tears for Fears right now. And he was my original drummer, and he's phenomenal. He, oh, he's great. outstanding. Agree. Uh, but I agree with you. That, that album, it, it was only released in the Christian market. I had five number one songs, Christian, radio which was really big at the time, okay? And I was on the cover of CCM, and I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, Nominated for Dove Awards, that album was a big deal, but only in the Christian market. So it never got a shot at mainstream, ever.
1: Yeah, and and you've got 10 songs that are sort of lost on the majority of rock fans, and it would be nice to, to, you know, just like you did with... uh the uh, second coming this this needs a you know needs to be resweetened it needs to be redone i agree because it's a really outstanding
0: album it was co-produced and co-written by greg fulkerson of blue tears who's who's uh, you know god bless him he's he's gone uh, really enjoyed working with greg um it was a special album man a, a special time and a special album and it did fantastic had it been released mainstream i think it it probably would have gone gold yeah. Which at that time was unheard of for someone like myself.
1: Yep. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and then we'll we'll finish with this here. Um, where would you put the two Sweet and Lynch albums, Unified and Only to Rise? I'd squeeze them
0: in there. I'd put the first Sweet and Lynch album a little higher. I might put that in the uh, you know up in the five the five or four spot, uh, maybe three, uh, and then I'd put the second album. Uh, uh, unified, uh, not quite as high. And, and the reason why I would do that is I feel like the first Sweet and Lynch album definitely had a little bit more of a uh, an energy and a fire to it, a little bit more. And the second album, we experimented a little bit more, but it was lacking some of that fire in some ways, but still a great album. I, I, I'm so pleased. The thing I love about those albums... Is uh, George? It's kind of a merge of Striper meets Dawkin, and, and you get a, a little bit more of the old Michael Sweet, uh, Michael Sweet, and you get a little bit more of the old George Lynch. You know, some of those solos he does, uh, like on Promised Land, for example, it's like, okay, there's George Lynch from 1988. You know, it's 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 a little bit more of of what you expect to hear from George versus George likes to experiment a lot, and sometimes he he does solos. Uh, that are really different and great, mind you. Uh, but I think most fans want that dude bring the fire, man. You know, bring the fire, and that's what they expect to hear from George. You get that on the Sweet Lynch stuff to a degree.
1: Yeah, you really do. And there you go. There we go. We we have done it. The entire the <laughs> countdown, uh, long long distance dedication to my to my sweet puppy. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, thank you, by the <laughs> way, for for taking all that because. Uh, you know it's 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 nice to have uh i guess i'll call you a co-host for this episode we we have some we've talked Dawkins, we've talked striper we've talked judas priest nazareth i mean that is a classic rock hour for you so so thank you so much
0: well man hey mitch i gotta say you know you've always waved that flag man and been behind us and uh man i i don't really know how to thank you for that it's if it weren't for people like yourself, guys like yourself, who helped us uh, get the word out there, uh, you know, I, we wouldn't be here. It's that simple, uh, especially in 2018. So thank you for always supporting what we do uh, and, and standing behind us. And there's a lot more to come, man.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, Goddamn Evil is the new album. It will be out later this spring, but do pick that up. It is uh, definitely worth uh Worth listening to. It's worth your time, and what a great, what a great time! I mean, between this and and Judas Priest Firepower and some of the other albums, what a great year in rock! Just unbelievable, amazing,
0: Amazing, man! And we're excited, and it's gonna get even better, you know. And you just keep following your heart and doing what you love to do with passion, and it's gonna get better.
1: Yeah, and and it's just amazing that here we are in 2018 and somewhere around 1992-93 they said rock is dead and (laughs) hair metal is dead and melodic rock is dead and it's like oh oh yeah well where's the new nirvana album oh yeah exactly Um, yeah yeah
0: (laughs) it's rock will never die i mean as long as it's you keep singing from the heart and putting out your best and quality it's never going to die i mean it there's nothing like that, like listening to a solid rock album. There's nothing like it. Never nothing. will be.
1: Never will be. And, uh, of course, a big welcome to uh, Perry Richardson, who has joined the band. Uh, nice to see him back uh, oh, in the man, fold of dude. rock and roll. So, yeah.
0: I tell you, as Todd uh, Latore put it, a good friend of mine, uh, singer for Queens uh he said, You guys really scored with him. And we did. We really scored. Um, Perry's name was brought up by our co-manager and, uh, the light went off and we thought, wow, perfect. Called him, talked to him, flew him out. A minute he walked in the room and we hung out with him. It's like, this is a guy before we even heard him play and sing.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah. then
0: we heard it, we heard him play and sing and it's like off the charts. It's, it's, he's such a perfect fit, man. We're very blessed to have this guy. Very blessed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, sir.
0: All right, my friend. Thank you. God bless you. Stay strong and
1: keep rocking. Absolutely. You too. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Mitch LaFond.